Uh, good afternoon. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Thanks for thanks for coming. I'm I'm Mike Green, senior vice president for Asia here in Japan, chair professor at Georgetown. Um, this is our eighth annual Asia forecast event. Um, we started doing this um, to try to pull together um, the experts at CSIS who work on different parts of Asia, different themes in Asia, um, to uh, challenge ourselves to think about what trends we see. Um, and we, um, we make use of these clickers to challenge you in the audience as well so that it's more of an interactive um, effort. Um, this is not meant to be predictive. Uh, in the past, we have been demarched by governments who complained that we were predicting certain things because the audience voted that uh, certain things would happen. Um, uh, it's not meant to be predictive, but it's, it's meant to sort of shake the cobwebs and help us start uh, the new year thinking through what challenges and opportunities we might um, face. Um, we'll go back and look at some of the previous questions we asked um, and what the audience said and, and whether or not those predictions were correct, but um, uh, there's no grade, uh, so don't worry. And also the clickers, uh, which you should have, are um, anonymous. Uh, we do not know who has the clickers. We do not sort of, we do not give you a social uh, credit rating as you go out the door based on your answers. Um, it's completely anonymous. Um, what we'll do is um, we'll have three panels um, on three themes. The first panel I will moderate, um, and it will be on political leadership, alignment, relationships among leaders. Um, the second panel, um, which will be moderated by Patrick Buchan, will look at uh, hard security challenges in the, in the, in the region, hotspots, danger zones. And the third panel, which Matthew Goodman will moderate, will look at economics and trade. And for each panel, um, we will um, put up questions, and you'll use your clickers to make your predictions. And after each uh, question, I'll turn to the panel up here and ask them if you all in the audience got it right, um, or um, uh, if they would think about it differently. Then we'll have time for Q&A, so you can tell the panel whether they got it right. Uh, and um, we'll try to keep this interactive. Uh, we'll take a. Uh, a break after the second panel if you want to get coffee for about 10 minutes. Um, and uh, as always, um, if we have some kind of uh, security event, um, we'll uh, let you know what to do, but essentially we'll evacuate um, out those doors. So let's, um, let's do a practice clicker run. Uh, Hannah Fodale is our master engineer. Um, I, and I think we have a practice question. Um, so this, uh, the clickers have um, uh, five A, B, C, D, E buttons. You can vote. You, you can push it many, many times, but this is not Chicago. You only get one vote. Um, uh, at some point, you can change your vote. You can keep moving it, and you'll see the bars moving up and down as people try to make up their mind. At some point, Hannah will freeze it, and that will be the official result. And um, uh, please turn on the power. That's the first thing. So there's an orange button um, that turns on your power. If you don't get a green light, um, wave your hand to one of the staff, and we'll get, we'll get you a functioning clicker. So let's um, turn on the power, the orange button, and let's, uh, let's do this uh, somewhat innocuous uh, question uh, to see if it's working. So I see people already voting. So in 2020, how prominent will Asia be in US headlines? Uh, more prominent, the always popular, about the same, uh, and less prominent. And then D and E, which aren't actually answers, so um, 
to the contrarians, uh, uh, thank you. M most of these will have a D and E, so this is good practice, don't worry. So the answer is more prominent, and then, you know, with the panel up here, I'll turn to the panel, and the panel will say, yes, of course it will be more prominent, because I will be on CNN more saying how important Asia is. Um, so that's how it works. Um, let's get started with the first panel. I'll invite them up now, which is on uh, leadership, uh, geopolitical uh, alignment. Yep. Um, so, come on, guys. So Jude Blanchett uh, is the Freeman Chair in China Studies. Um, he was the former engagement director at the Conference Board's China Center for Economics and Business in Beijing, uh, worked at UCSD, um, consults for the Crumpton Group, um, he has an MA in Modern Chinese Studies from Oxford, uh, and he has published recently a really excellent book on neo-Maoism and ideological trends in Asia. Um, Victor Cha is the Senior Advisor and CREA Chair here, Vice Dean for Faculty and Graduate Affairs, uh, and D.S. Song Professor of Government at Georgetown. He was Director uh, for Asian Affairs at the NSC and the Deputy uh, Head of the uh, Six-Party Talks Delegation. Um, and Amy Seawright uh, is the Senior Advisor and Director of our Southeast Asia Program at CSIS. She worked in the Pentagon as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for South and Southeast Asia, um, worked in uh, the State Department policy planning uh, in uh, USAID. Uh, she has a PhD from Stanford and was a professor at George Washington University. And um, from our Wadwani Chair in India Studies, Rick Rosso is in India. Um, one of the challenges we have scheduling this is our Asia experts are almost always somewhere in Asia. Um, but Raymond Vickery uh, is standing in on India. Uh, Raymond is senior associate with the Wadwani Chair in US India Policy and a senior advisor at Albridge, excuse me, Albright Stonebridge Group, um, former Assistant Secretary of Commerce for Trade and Development in the Clinton administration, uh, and a longtime uh, India Walla. So um, let's get started with the first questions. And I'll invite you to click, and then we'll discuss it on the panel. So um, I think you can all see it, but I'll, I'll read the question. In the general election, US presidential candidates are most likely to advocate the following on China. Uh, a is easing tensions and seeking a new grand bargain with Beijing. Uh, B is criticism, continued criticism of China's human rights, economic, and security policies. Panel doesn't get to vote. <laughs> you get to comment, though. Uh, OK, you can vote. It's not that fun. Uh, C is. Uh, uh, advocate moving towards more economic and financial decoupling, and then D is nothing. It uh, won't be a, uh, a topic. Um, so, Hannah, when you're ready, freeze the answers. Uh, so, uh, the general expectation in this audience, which is, of course, a well-informed audience, and in some cases, maybe writing the talking points for the candidates, um, is that there will be, overwhelmingly, there will be criticism of China's human rights, economic, and security policies. Jude, I'm going to let you start unpacking that one for us. Um, I shouldn't have voted E, I guess. Um, so I, I think we're already beginning to see what some of the candidates are saying on China, and I think it's broadly a, a, a mix of, of B and C, although that's not an option. Um, B in the sense that almost all the candidates have taken, a, a, I think, a tight cluster of positions that are highlighting issues like uh, Xinjiang, where there's the detention of, of more than a million uh, Muslims in, in security camps, and, and obviously the events in Hong Kong. And these are acting as catalysts for what is a already hardening position here in the United States. Um, I'd say also C, though, in the sense that 
we're, we're seeing a, a movement towards de facto decoupling driven as much by uh, institutional failures and, and the inability of our existing economic and financial institutions to deal with the really thorny national security challenges that, that come from uh, interdependence with China's uh, political economy and, and the level of control that the, the Communist Party has. So I, I'd say that the, um, uh, the, the broadly the move for de decoupling is going to be something that's going to be difficult to reverse. The real interesting thing will be beyond simply criticism of China's uh, human rights and uh, economic and security policies, when, it, when are some of the Democratic candidates going to begin articulating a, a positive vision uh, or a broader vision for what they see the relationship with, with China looking like? And I think this is one where it's early and it's a, not a politically uh, beneficial position to take at, at this point, but uh, that's what I'll be watching for. Do you... Uh B was continued criticism. So do you think we have sort of reached peak uh, China bashing uh, for this presidential cycle, or do you think it's going to intensify? I mean, there's definitely going to be criticism, but do you see it becoming uh, even more pronounced or sort of what we have generally seen? I've been, I've been expecting we've reached peak uh, China uh, uh, every year for the past three or four years, and I, I keep being surprised. In many ways, the answer to that question is being determined by, by Beijing as much it is, as it is by the United States. And I sense that 2020 is going to be a year where uh, the Communist Party of China um, kind of finally takes the gloves off, partly because we've got uh, a floor underneath us with the, the phase one trade deal. Um, and Beijing's expectation uh, or stated that, that it, it's not really looking for a phase two or it's going to kick that can uh, as far down the road as, as possible. But broadly speaking, the, the political direction in China is one of increasing illiberalism. Um, Xinjiang is not going away as a, as a political security issue. Hong Kong is certainly not going away anytime as a, a political security issue. We've recently had the, uh, t the election in, in Taiwan, which saw a, pretty, a sweeping victory for the DPP under President Tsai Ing-wen. And, and the core takeaway out of that presidential election is deep unhappiness with the way that Beijing is, um, or Xi Jinping is talking about the future of, of cross-straits relations. None of these issues are, are going to go away. And in fact, I suspect, as, as Marx would say, the contradictions are going to be uh, even more prominent uh, in, in 2020. So um, it sounds a little bit like you're describing a consensus view emerging in this debate uh, on the US side. Uh, you know, you follow Chinese leadership um, in Beijing for a decade and, and have written about it. Um, how conscience Conscious is not the right word. How careful or deliberative do you think Zheng Nanghai is going to be about issues like trade or Hong Kong or the South China Sea, knowing it's a U.S. presidential election year? I mean, in past years, I think they would be quite careful. What, what do you expect under Xi? I think those of us who watch this issue pretty closely have been consistently surprised by um, uh, how club-footed Beijing has been on uh, U.S.-China relations. I mean, it's really been surprising throughout the trade war. We've been waiting for China to, to get the United States and to really have an accurate calibration on uh, political dynamics here in the U.S., and, and we haven't seen it yet. Um, I don't want to overstate the point because there's lots of smart folks within the Chinese political system, but broadly speaking, the, um, the, the governance and policymaking uh, process in China has, has really been, um, I, I think, set on a, a, a fundamentally dangerous trajectory under Xi Jinping, where 
We're seeing information flows not moving from the bottom to the top in the way that they used to. There's fundamental questions about the level of, of accurate information that Xi Jinping is getting. Um, he's created a, a culture of, of fear and ideological uh, paranoia, which makes it very difficult to, to walk down the hall, knock on the boss's door, and, and tell him that the, the policy trajectory in China uh, needs a, co a course correction. So we're accustomed to thinking of the technocracy in Beijing as uh, essentially uh, running the show, and that's what's given us a lot of confidence that Beijing will successfully navigate thorny challenges, whether those be uh, economic, political, or security, and starting to question whether, whether or not its ability to do that uh, exists. And many of the pathologies that we saw in China's political and, and policymaking process in previous generations, I think at, at the apex under Mao Zedong, we thought completely went away and we, we had a fundamentally new way of governance in China and I think what's, what's surprising and, and concerning for me is many of those tendencies uh, appear to be returning. So, um. You know, the, the, the pattern uh, in U.S.-China relations during election cycles uh, has been uh, Ronald Reagan criticized Jimmy Carter for normalizing, wanted to normalize with Taiwan. But by his second term, Ronald Reagan had struck new agreements with China and relations improved. Uh, Bill Clinton attacked the Bush administration. His campaign said they cuddle the butchers of Beijing. First year was rough, but of course, the Clinton administration negotiated China's entry in the WTO. Uh, George W. Bush, for whom I worked, uh, famously said China's not a strategic partner, it's a strategic competitor. But I think most historians would say US-China relations actually improved. Um, the most recent election where China was not a major issue was McCain and Obama. There wasn't a lot of China criticism, and U.S.-China relations deteriorated. So I'm not saying there's a predictable pattern, but the pattern has been that even when there's a hot China debate in the presidential election, it doesn't necessarily predict how the president will govern, but this time it's a bit different. You're pointing to some structural differences in how Zheng Nanghai manages the relationship and also, of course, the larger geopolitical context. Anyone else want to weigh in on the China one quickly? Amy? I, I agree with everything that, um, that, that Jude said. I think when you, when you think about this election, uh, I think there are two reasons why the, the Democratic candidates are likely to continue criticism across the human rights, economic, and security policy spectrum. You know, one is I think it, there is a convergence uh, between the two parties to a large degree uh, on the on the challenges that China poses in those areas. And as, as Jude mentioned, the continuing uh, stories probably in the headlines this year uh, on Xinjiang and Hong Kong is, is going to, I think, continue to uh, push Democratic candidates in that uh, direction. And the other thing is the dynamic with running against Trump, um, I think, is going to make any candidate uh, wary of seeming to be soft on China because you know, they're, gonna, they're really going to be looking to be tough in a whole range of ways um, going up against Trump and not allowing Trump to paint them as weak or soft or whatever. So I think there's going to be a lot of caution in trying to sort of paint out a vision of relations with China that could be mischaracterized, perhaps, or characterized as much, as much softer. So I think those two reasons are going to push the candidates to, uh, to be relative relatively consistent in terms of, of criticism. But the one thing I think you'll really see, I, I hope you'll see, is uh, Demo leading Democratic candidates attack Trump, not on Trump being too hard on China, um, but not being smart 
in his policies, his strategies. So in other words, there's a lot of room for criticism of, of Trump policies towards China, of you know, a lot of internal inconsistencies. And for example, if we're going to go after China on trade and economic relations, perhaps we should work more closely with our allies and partners to have a collective approach, perhaps through a multilateral institution like the WTO, rather than going around sort of you know, uh, uh, tearing down alliance trade relationships and attacking the WTO at the same time. So I think there's going to be a lot of room for criticizing Trump's foreign policy towards China in terms of uh, the, the tactics and the effectiveness, but I don't think the criticism will be, will be lessened. Yeah. Um, just add that I think um, the other way to look at this question is that if, if all of us are right that in fact this will be a, a year in which we'll see a lot of criticism of China, um, it, it's not only all of us that are watching the election, it's everybody else in the rest of the world. And in particular, how do other countries in Asia, whether allies and partners of the United States, how are they looking at this situation, particularly if this um, you know, whether we move beyond a phase one trade deal or something else happens in U.S.-China relations where Washington and Beijing are suddenly creating binary choices for allies and partners in the region, um, do they see it, like as Mike said, do they sort of step back and say, well, you know, it just heats up in the election year, but eventually it all starts to moderate again? Do they feel that way or do they believe what Jude says, which there is something structurally different? I, I know you, you agree with that, but there's st something structurally different there. And then the real question becomes, does the U.S.-China dynamic and the campaign create issues in the coming year that force binary choices on these partners, where they have to make a decision that they get locked into, which, may re which they may regret, you know, siding with either the United States or China? And one thing you can be sure of, um, if China's in the news, um, just as, you know, when Japan was in the news in the late 80s and early 90s, if China's in the news, then every policy debate will be about China healthcare, spending, tax cuts, defense budget. So China will be in the discussion. Whether or not it leads to a debate about China policy, I think is a much more open question. Let's go to the next one, um, which is a question about uh, uh, which country uh, will have, U.S. relations in Asia will improve the most with which of these countries. And we'll talk about some other countries up on the panel, but these are the five big ones. And be sure to, sometimes your clicker will go off to save batteries, so you have to turn it on again before you vote, right? Look for the green button. So this is, this is where relations will improve. Interesting. Um, well, Raymond, why don't we start with you, because India, India wins. <laughs> yeah, India does win, and I think this is, will be a winning year for uh, U.S.-India relations. Uh, as you know, the two-plus-two uh, ministerial went very well. Security uh, matters are proceeding at a very uh, great pace. Uh, you have a very strong, I think, relationship uh, between uh, the president and prime minister uh, Modi. Uh, for better or for worse, they have a lot in common, it seems. Uh, I think that uh, the uh, rumored uh, trip will take place very, uh, very soon with the president uh, going to India, and it'll be in the interests of both governments to portray that, whether it is or not, uh, as a great success. Uh, and as you know, uh, uh, the president was with uh, Modi for uh, uh, Howdy Modi uh, down in Houston. 
And so that whole ethos is going to continue. Now, the very real differences in terms of trade uh, and uh, economics are there, but they're going to be papered over. Uh, there will be an announcement, I'm sure, that will look like uh, a lot of progress is being made uh, on the trade and economic uh, interest. And when you have the uh, national security dynamics, uh, both countries being concerned about uh, China, uh, being concerned about what's happening with Afghanistan, and you already have India basically complying with U.S. Uh, uh, wishes in regard to Iran, in regard to importation of oil, and then they really didn't even say too much about the killing of uh, General Soleimani. So I think everything's in place uh, for that relationship uh, to, uh, to go forward, at least in, uh, in 2020. Now, whether or not that bodes well overall in the longer run because of differences uh, about uh, how you handle uh, minorities, uh, human rights, what happens in rule of law, uh, that could very much change uh, with the U.S. elections at the end of the year. Uh, but uh, for the foreseeable future in 2020, I think uh, the audience is exactly right. Um, I, is it fair to say there's not much prospect of India becoming an issue in our election? I mean, in the 2008 primary, people may recall the Obama campaign went after Hillary Clinton because she was co-chair of the India caucus and they had a negative ad, you know, Hillary Clinton D. Jaipur. <laughs> trying to yeah. take a dig at her, and it completely backfired. So I, I, I think the politics of U.S.-India relations in the U.S. are pretty positive. Is uh, that right, or is it pretty yeah, safe? That, and what I about, and what about in India, too? Is there they're, a, is very, there... they're very positive, uh, and I think that uh, even on the Indian side, uh, it is, it's very positive as well. So I don't, I don't see that as being uh, an issue uh, a la the Hillary Clinton uh, matter you talked about. Um, everybody is, seems to be in agreement uh, that, yes, uh, uh, India and the U.S. need to have a stronger relationship. And, of course, you have a very active Indian-American uh, constituency uh, in, uh, in, in both parties now, really. And so I see that as, uh, as, as making it sort of a non-issue. Uh, I think that, you know, the American electorate really doesn't care much about foreign affairs to start with, and the things that they do care about are the ones that you hit the news uh, or the ones that are very prominent, um, China, Iran, uh, but uh, India is sort of uh, taken as a uh, granted. So, Victor, um, four people thought relations with North Korea would improve this year. It's not clear whether they think that's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, uh, South Korea, there's a lot of troubling stuff on the agenda for U.S. ROK relations. How do you take the result? Um, so for the four people who chose North Korea, remember North Korea is the bad Korea. That's not the good Korea. So, um, But I will say that um, um, on for the four people who did, did say North Korea, I would not rule out the possibility, at least maybe for the next couple of months, that there could be some sort of turn to diplomacy. I know it doesn't look like it right now because of all the things that the North Koreans have said. 
um, uh, threatening um, uh, threats uh, of ICBM tests and everything. But <clears throat> um, this is the one issue where President Trump personally has invested a lot of personal diplomacy and a lot of personal capital. One thing we know very clearly is that he doesn't ever want to admit failure in terms of his policies, and he'll take deals, phase one deals, and turn them, talk about them like they're the best deal ever. So I, I wouldn't entirely rule it out on the U.S. side, and I wouldn't entirely rule it out on the North Korean side, largely because the North Koreas are watching our election as well. Um, and if they can get some sort of phase one deal on their own where there's a partial lifting of sanctions for some sort of temporary freeze on facilities that they don't really use anymore anyway, um, that would be a good place for them to be to, 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 to wait out the results of, um, of the U.S. elections. So I, I, don't, I don't, would not give it a high probability, but I certainly would not rule it out simply based on all this talk about Christmas gifts at the end of the year and the harder turn in the plenary session speeches that Kim Jong-un gave, gave in January. I think it's not, it's, not, it's not impossible that that could happen. So. The four people who, who voted on that, um, um, you could be actually quite right. <laughs> um, come to South Korea in the next question. Actually, let's, let's do the next question, which sort of asks the reverse of this one, and we'll continue the discussion. So which country in Asia uh, will have relations with the U.S. deteriorate the most? So same, same countries, but now asking where is it going to be most problematic? Um, China, uh, so South Korea. So, Victor, pick up on South Korea now, where there's a little bit of pessimism in the room. Of course, China, apropos our first question, sucks a lot of the oxygen out of this question. But you know, Korea's got yeah. That's a pretty significant. Yeah. that's pretty significant. That that people and that there are more. I can't really read the numbers from here, but that there are more that think relations with South Korea will deteriorate. Yeah, there are a lot of issues on the plate in U.S.-South Korea relations uh, over the. Um, uh, over the next year, <clears throat> there still is unresolved the, the special measures agreement negotiation, the cost-sharing negotiations between the United States and South Korea. Um, the uh, Trump administration seems to have come off, at least the negotiator has seemed to come off of this figure widely port reported in the press of a 500% increase or $5 billion uh, contribution by the South Koreans, where the norm in past cost-sharing agreements has been about an 8% increase in the, um, the non-personnel cost of stationing U.S. forces in Korea that previous South Korean governments have, have, uh, have agreed to. In our own research at CSIS, we see that the, um, this issue doesn't get much coverage in the United States, and most Americans don't know about it, but it's intensely covered in Korea, and we actually did um, a database study scraping social media in Korea and found that whenever there are stories about this cost-sharing agreement, um, uh, South Korean engagement with anti-U.S. videos and chat rooms in South Korean social media actually spikes. It's been the highest it's ever been. So you would, I guess you would expect that sort of thing to happen, but there's actually a measurement for this now, and, and it's, quite, it's quite significant. So that, that's, that's one issue. Of course, North Korea is another issue. The Moon government has been pretty clear in the new, starting in the new year that they want to improve relations with North Korea, even if they're stalemate in U.S.-South Korea relations. Um, I was out in California last week when Pompeo held a trilateral with um, 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 uh, Motegi and with Kong, and Kong in a press statement said it's that uh, there is no necessary linkage between 
U.S.-North Korea relations and progress in, in, in inter-Korean relations. Um, and they've been talking about um, restarting tourism projects and, and things of that nature. And there's still a very big interest in infrastructure, building infrastructure in North Korea. If you add to that the fact that in 2020, uh, South Korea is going to celebrate the 30th anniversary of normalized relations with the Soviet Union or Russia, um, the South Koreans have been pushing very hard for a Putin visit, first ever he would make in his current role, um, to Seoul uh, early in the, in the new year, in the first quarter of the year, where I think what they would like to tee up are some big projects on infrastructure, energy, and rail railways that would involve North Korea. So all of this would happen while there's presumably stalemate in U.S. Uh, North Korea negotiations, which, uh, which would naturally lead to tension in, in U.S.-South Korea relations. And then finally, down the road, there is the whole question of OPCON transition, the transfer of wartime operational control from the U.S. Uh, to South Korea, which the Moon government for, I mean, political, some ideological reasons would like to see happen uh, by the end of his term in office, which is in a couple of years. Um, um, now, of course, there are lots of prerequisites that have to be met for that to happen, and that has been the template before for deciding on a timetable for OPCON transition. But this may all be trumped by um, a political imperative uh, uh, by the South Koreans uh, that, could, that could also create more complications in the relationship. So it will be a complicated year for the U.S. and South Korea. So what are the, what are the chances, what are the dangers? Put a number on it if you can. Um, you're a political scientist, that should be easy. Um, what, are the, what are the chances we get the so-called perfect storm? SMA negotiations break down, wartime OPCON transfer builds momentum in the Blue House. Uh, President Trump meets uh, Kim Jong-un and uh, reaches a, an end of war declaration or a peace declaration, says I want to pull troops out. Uh, Koreans can't get the number he wants. He announces he's pulling troops out. You know, real crisis in the us rk alliance. Uh, very dangerous, a little bit dangerous, 10%, 5%. How would you... Um, that. So I'll, I'll, I'll put a number on it as long as you don't hold me to it. Um, Nobody's listening. Yeah. Um, so I, I think there's a 30% chance. Really? That's something like that. So it's not insignificant that something like that could happen. Again, I don't rule out a phase one deal between Trump and Kim with a fourth meeting, um, you know, uh, presumably before March. I mean, um, there are a lot of things that have to come in place for that to happen, but, you know, I think Trump's predilection is not to do the major military exercises in the spring, the, the ones that they, the big military maneuver exercises that take place in the spring. I think his inclination is not to do those because he considers them to be too expensive anyway. Um, and, you know, that might provide another opportunity for there to be, um, you know, I, I don't think there's much that needs to happen for there to be a phase one deal. I mean, what it just really requires is some suspension of sanctions, partial suspension of sanctions with a snapback provision um, and freezing of some facilities that the North Koreans really don't like. Now, for all, all of us in the room who do non-proliferation, that is far from optimal, but it could still be trumpeted by some people as the best deal ever. So right, this so. may be the black swan topic of the day, because as you recall in 2003, when then President Noh Hyun started criticizing U.S. forces and leading analysts to believe he was going to push for the U.S. to leave Korea, Moody's downgraded Korea's sovereign debt rating, and it was uh, almost an economic crisis. Yeah. Um, yeah. So th this, Matt may have to pick this up on the last panel, because this could be a black swan for the Korean economy and the economy in Northeast Asia if it actually 
uh, is the perfect storm. Amy, um, we did, you know, you have 10 ASEAN countries. We couldn't put them all on here with our clickers. Who, who would you uh, put in the mix? Which country would you put in the mix for most likely to improve, most likely to deteriorate with the U.S.? Um, well, first, I think one answer would be the most likely to improve is ASEAN, U.S.-ASEAN relations, because right now they're not at a super great point because President Trump skipped uh, the um, East Asia Summit, the ASEAN-hosted East Asia Summit in Bangkok this past November and did not send Vice President Pence or Secretary of State Pompeo. National Security Advisor O'Brien went, which was a historical low precedent for the level of representation. So there's a fair amount of disappointment, perhaps even bitterness, among many ASEAN uh, partners. Um, but sort of in compensation for that as a makeup uh, bid, uh, President Trump invited the 10 leaders to the United States. And there is now on track a U.S. ASEAN summit planned for Las Vegas in the middle of March. Uh, and it looks like uh, probably at least eight of the 10 leaders will come with Duterte and Mahathir, um, sort of unconfirmed at this point. Um, so this is an opportunity for President Trump to use personal engagement with the leaders um, to, to build some rapport. And perhaps uh, uh, some interesting announcements could come out of it. Perhaps the, the new International Development Finance Corp Corporation, IDFC, uh, will come out with some um, uh, uh, announcements about some funding. Uh, they've already been talking to Indonesia, Vietnam, and some others in the region, so perhaps some financing for infrastructure. Uh, so there's potential here, although I think it's a very short window for the NSC and the State Department to uh, build up a meaningful program and, and outcomes for this meeting, and frankly, there's still a lot of skepticism in the region, so we'll see if President Trump can really reset U.S.-ASEAN relations. The other country to point to is Vietnam. Vietnam, of course, for many years, there's been a positive trajectory with our uh, cooperation, our growing dialogue, our defense cooperation. You know, it's really emerging as a new strategic partner in the region, um, although from a very low base, obviously, because of our historical uh, legacies. Um, but this year is the 25th anniversary of U.S.-Vietnam normalization of relations, and so there's going to be a lot of fanfare and commemoration around that. And on top of it, Vietnam is chairing ASEAN this year, so it will be hosting the East Asia Summit in the fall. Uh, there's going to be a lot of interest and whether President Trump will come to that. It will be um, at least 10 days, I think about 10 days or two weeks after the U.S. presidential election. So there's real, which has been deliberately timed for the hope that President Trump would come. Um, and so that's going to be a, a big point. And finally, in, in Vietnam, it's, it's the lead up to their 13th Party Congress next year. So Vietnam is doing a lot of work right now um, thinking about uh, how it wants to diversify, as they put it, their uh, foreign relations. And uh, there, there may well be interest in Hanoi in strengthening uh, U.S.-Vietnam ties, um, which could coincide with a, a visit by President Trump or a visit by a Vietnamese leader. They've been looking to send uh, either the general Secretary of the Communist Party, the most powerful person in Vietnam, or perhaps Prime Minister Phuc again to Washington. Um, I do think we'll, we'll, we might see a visit in Washington uh, this year. So I think Vietnam is, is certainly the, uh, the bell of the ball among the ASEANs. And I don't see, on the downside of the ledger, I don't see any country in, in Southeast Asia um, likely to really have deteriorating relations with the United States this year. Um, you know, Myanmar is, is having a presidential election late this year. Uh, and so it's, it is quite possible that that election could turn rather messy in terms of some uh, campaigning, some messaging around the Rohingya issue. And that could sort of, you know, that could 
further put downward pressure on our relationship with Aung San Suu Kyi and Myanmar, but, but we'll have to wait and see. So um, uh, watch Korea uh, and uh, with concern, watch Vietnam with uh, hope. Um, let's go to the next question. Turn on your clickers so they're armed. So we're going to uh, start getting into domestic politics a bit more. And the question is, which leader will have the best year in 2020? Joe Kowi, Moon Jae-in, Modi, Abe, or Xi Jinping? And we'll maybe look at a few other leaders who aren't up on the board. Um, well, Abe. <laughs> uh, he's had um, a lot of good years. Um, he, uh, he, uh, he has um, uh, become the longest serving prime minister uh, in Japan's history. Um, he has become uh, something of, a, um, of an anchor or a pillar in the G7, um, where President Trump's relationship with Prime Minister Trudeau of Canada and the European leaders is suboptimal. And um, the dynamic has emerged around um, Abe as the consensus builder within the G7. And in a way that most people would not have predicted, a few years ago, uh, Abe has emerged uh, as something of a bridge builder between the US and China. Um, Xi Jinping will uh, conduct a state visit in the spring to Japan. That's an enormous coup for a Japanese prime minister who was pilloried by the Chinese when he came to power. Um, it's good for Japanese business. I think the Japanese government would go out of its way and has gone out of its way to explain that it has not gone soft on China, that, uh, for example, in the East China Sea, the number of times the Japan Air Self-Defense Forces has had to scramble this year is almost twice what it was last year because of PLA Air Force. Uh, so the problems with Japan-China relations, military, technological, 5G, uh, are all still there. The geopolitical rivalry is still there. But it's definitely a relationship that's warmed this year and will probably continue to warm into the spring. Um, and so uh, in a way that people would not have predicted for Shinzo Abe, he's actually probably got a better relationship with China right now than Donald Trump does. And in Japanese foreign policy, the best place you want to be is a bridge between the US and Europe, between the US and China. How long that will last will depend on US policy uh, and on Chinese behavior and what unpredictable or problematic things China might do for Japan. Uh, the Olympics are coming up. Um, that could be an enormous success. But if you follow Japanese news, you know that the prime minister has been hit with a few scandals. Um, and so politics, as they say in Japan, one step ahead is darkness, <laughs> especially in a parliamentary system. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, Modi did well again, Ray. Um, is he bulletproof? It seems to me he's certainly not bulletproof, but uh, I do think that uh, it's right to put him up there as having a good year uh, for some of the same reasons that I talked about earlier in regard to what's likely to happen in the U.S.-India relationship. Uh, I do think that uh, some of these uh, problems uh, in regard uh, to the Citizenship Act, the registry, uh, the riots at JNU, uh, the university. Uh, I think there's an opportunity for Modi to uh, rise above that in a way, while at the same time being able to expand uh, his political base based upon his Hindu uh, uh, orientation. 
But in addition to the U.S. Uh, and India, Modi has done, I think, a remarkable job in terms of keeping and improving relationships with Russia. Uh, it looks like uh, uh, India is continuing on with Russia as an arms supplier. Uh, even with China, even uh, they calmed down some of the border uh, stuff, and now you have Brazil. Bolsonaro is going to come uh, for uh, the uh, ceremonies and the parade there. So I think that he's set to, to do pretty well. Of course, the flies and the ointment could very well be the economy. It's not been doing that well. Uh, I think it'll probably do better than the 5.6 or so uh, GDP growth that has been forecast. Um, and it seems to me that the need to, uh, to provide jobs, you need about a million more uh, each month. Uh, and so I don't, that can, that can catch him also. And another wild card is climate change, really. I mean, you see uh, how pollution has, uh, has uh, had an effect this winter. And uh, who knows what happens uh, in the summer in terms of, uh, of increasing heat and really uninhabitable uh, areas, uh, lack of water. You see what's happened in, in, in across the country in Chennai and different places in terms of that. So those things could uh, rise up, but I don't, I don't see that happening. And I think it's, uh, it's very well advised to put him probably second from the top and having a great year. So the common shadow over 2020 for all of these leaders is uncertainty about economic growth. Japanese growth is slowing down. South Korea is struggling. We, and, and, and we'll hear more about China and others on Matt Goodman's paddle. The thing that all these leaders have in common as a strength is their opposition is weak, divided, and confused about its future. I mean, Ray, the Congress party is in some disarray. In Japan, the, the, the Rikento and the opposition parties are scattered. Um, and although Moon Jae-in's got a mountain of problems, the Korea Liberty Party has no clear leader and is itself divided. Um, and uh, Indonesia as well. Um, so um, these are strong leaders, but the economy will determine how strong they remain. I want to jump to the last question before we take questions from the audience, Hannah, the very last question about uh, democracy. And then we'll... So uh, the, the question is, in, and turn on your clicker, um, and apropos the discussion we just had, in 2020, democracy in Asia will dramatically proliferate with success of protest movements, Hong Kong, for example, will slowly improve, remain the same, or deteriorate? So the answer is um, slightly pessimistic. <laughs> Slightly pessimistic. The Journal of Democracy's um, uh, signature issue that just came out argued that democratization peaked in around 2005 or 6. And things like the financial crisis, um, ethnic nationalism, uh, polarized societies and economic uncertainty, social media have all complicated uh, uh, democracy. And then you've had an authoritarian turn uh, in places like China. So let's go down the road, starting with Jude, and react to this for 2020, but also for the longer term. So I, I was in Taiwan last week, so I'm feeling particularly optimistic about 
the, the, the prospects for some democracies in the face of this, uh, as you mentioned, this global trend of deterioration in, in both um, success of democracies, but also belief in democracies. Um, what struck me about the example of Taiwan is <clears throat> there's a uh, turnout for the presidential election was uh, 80%. Um, and what came through the, the week of discussions was how strongly the Taiwanese believe that democratic institutions are, are not only about protecting individual rights, but about protecting national security. Um, and uh, you, you just see that a country that is facing pressure externally uh, from China um, that is, um, I think, returning to strengthening roots of democracy uh, shows that even in this sort of dire times, there, there is the possibility. And I think uh, the example of Taiwan has the potential to, to radiate out slightly to those countries that are thinking about how you deal with uh, a China challenge. But I, I chose deteriorate just because remain the same feels a bit of a cop-out. Choosing the status quo is always easier than uh, uh, expecting a change. But I think the broad trend of declining belief and faith in institutions of democratic governance will, uh, will continue. Ray? Well, it depends on how you define democracy. Uh, I think that uh, if you look at India, you're going to see a continued rise of populism, uh, some of the same trends that we have in this country. Uh, I don't really see that necessarily as uh, a rise in democracy. It seems to me that in order to say that you're going to have uh, an improvement, You've got to factor in uh, rule of law, uh, respect for human rights, uh, all of those things which we hold dear as really checks on populism. Uh, in India, I don't see that happening uh, at this point. It seems to me uh, that uh, Modi's on a roll. And he's on a roll in part because of uh, the populist uh, appeal. And I'm afraid uh, others know on the panel know more about it than I do, but then in other countries, uh, uh, you see some of the same things. And in regard to um, the protests uh, and uh, standing up for some of these uh, uh, rights of, uh, of minorities and for democracy, it has yet to be shown that those things are going to really uh, produce results uh, in 2020. So I voted um, uh, for deteriorate as well, uh, but not because there isn't going to be uh, a lot of activity and participation. Uh, I think the audience has it right. Uh, I, I think it's, it's going to remain largely the same. Um, in Southeast Asia, there's been a very mixed picture for democracy in recent years, um, and really historically. But recently, we did see a bright spot in Malaysia take a democratic turn with the protest movement that led to the overthrow of, of the former ruling party. Um, and now Dr. Mahathir is, is back, but in a new opposition coalition. We saw Indonesia carry out the world's largest ever uh, day-long uh, election last year that re-elected uh, uh, President Modi, excuse me, <laughs> President Jokowi. Um, uh, so so, um, so, and so Indonesia is doing relatively well on the democratic front, although there's some problems with the rise of identity pop 
politics and political Islam. Um, we've seen Thailand stumble in democracy recently. We've seen uh, Cambodia backslide. We've seen the Philippines and, and Myanmar um, take some steps backwards on human rights and some democratic norms like freedom of the press. And then we have countries like Laos and Vietnam that, aren't, that are not democratic and are not going to leave that category anytime soon. So I think we're going to see mostly more of the same. The two countries in the region that do have elections this year are Singapore and Myanmar. And so they're both interesting in their own ways. But um, Myanmar, Aung San Suu Kyi, will be up for you know her party uh, for re-election. Uh, she'll be looking to be the, the de facto leader again. And um, it'll be a much more competitive uh, uh, political landscape. But if she emerges with a real mandate, that could uh, uh, that could be a, a really positive harbinger for constitutional reform, which really could put Myanmar more on the path to democracy, true democracy. So I, I voted D for deteriorate, and um, I think part of this, part of my pessimism is the combination of a lack of U.S. leadership on this issue in the region and uh, the shadow of China in terms of um, all this capital without any uh, real concern about the, the values part of the democracy picture. I mean, um, the, as Ray said, there's the institutions and rule of law part, and there's the values part. And where I see really the ter deterioration is on, on the value side, because there is no leadership on this um, by the United States, and, and there's China. Um, on the Korean Peninsula, this is the manifestation. This is very obvious on the Korean Peninsula when it comes to the issue of human rights uh, in North Korea. The, the current administration of the United States still has not appointed a congressionally mandated position, which is a special envoy for North Korean human rights. Bob King, who is now a, a fellow with us at CSIS, was that envoy during the eight years of the Obama administration. Um, <clears throat> uh, China, in the last meeting that Xi, Xi Jinping and Kim Jong-un had, uh, the North Korean leader was taken to biometric facilities to learn about biometric technology that could then be used for a greater monitoring of the, popu of the population for population control purposes in North Korea. Um, and then in South Korea, even though you have the leader of the country who, is, um, who was a human rights lawyer and fought for democracy in Korea, um, South Korean government funding for uh, um, uh, North Korean human rights has gone down 90% for South Korean NGOs. And um, there's this, um, in the human rights community, there's this very notorious and recent case of the South Koreans for the first time actually sending back defectors who had come across to, who had escaped to South Korea, sending them back to North Korea, which is something that we've seen the Chinese do for like the last 10 or 15 years, but uh, we haven't seen the, the South Korean government actually do that. And it violates UN charters, right? Yes, of course. So on the bright side, um, uh, we uh, do surveys of um, thought leaders in Asia every few years on these questions and found since, Nick, the first one was 2010, I think, that um, outside of China uh, and to some extent Singapore, um, thought leaders in the rest of Asia say that uh, the future of their country and the region depends on good governance, women's empowerment, democracy, rule of law, human rights, free and fair elections. And those numbers every three, four years when we do these surveys go up. Amy and I just did a survey. We'll be publishing the results shortly. It's gone up yet again. The principle of non-interference in internal affairs, which in 2010 uh, was just behind these democratic norms for ASEAN countries in India, that one has gone steadily down. 
except in China. So the zeitgeist or the, 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 the attitude towards these democratic norms uh, uh, is actually getting uh, deeper and wider. Um, uh, the challenges are getting bigger. <laughs> so there is something there that we can work with. Um, uh, let me uh, take, if I can, uh, one or two questions and then we'll wrap up and turn over to the security panel. There are microphones. If you'd like to ask a question or make your own prediction or uh, briefly comment, please put up your hand and we have mics. Um, I see one over here. Microphone team. Over, you can see where I'm pointing? Go, go, go. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Big Chen uh, from University of Antwerp. So Dr. C, right? I was so glad that you mentioned Vietnam. Yeah, so <clears throat> as you mentioned that the 2020 will be a very busy year for both the United States and Vietnam. Uh, because of U.S. election and then Vietnam's responsibility. Um, but many, many people are hoping for the two countries to upgrade their relationship to a strategic partnership. But, you know, the, such a partnership usually, you know, is signed by the head of state. But, um, you know, President Phu, Nguyen Phu Trọng couldn't make the visit to the United States last year because of his health problem. And then President Trump, you know, already paid a state visit to Vietnam. So I wonder, you know, in the case, you know, uh, if, you know, Prime Minister Phuc, you know, visits the United States instead of President Trump, then will the two countries go ahead and upgrade their partnership to a strategic partnership? Thank you. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question. Um, I think it's the decision is largely with Vietnam. I think the United States would welcome the idea of, of upgrading our relationship from a comprehensive partnership to a strategic partnership. Um, you know, Hanoi has to think through their options. Uh, Hanoi is very careful about balancing relations among many partners, but particularly with China. So they would have to weigh the kind of backlash that that would create with their relationship with China. And also, um, I, did, I did not mention on the trade front, uh, relations with the US and Vietnam are uh, rather tricky now because President Trump has made Vietnam a target um, based on their recent export success, in part because of the, uh, the effects of the U.S.-China trade war and some investment going to Vietnam and exports increasing. So I think Hanoi has to balance whether it's risky to upgrade the relationship at a time when the Trump administration may be going after Vietnam on trade. That may create some domestic political issues as well as some foreign policy issues with China. I think they're thinking through those, uh, those issues right now, but again, I think, it's, I think, I think uh, having a, a, a leader visit uh, one way or the other, President Trump might go to Hanoi for the East Asia Summit. We may see a visit here by, as you said, General Secretary Trump or, uh, or, or Prime Minister Fouke, and I think any of those uh, visits could be the right venue to roll out a new relationship if, if Vietnam is ready. Are there other questions? So let me, uh, yeah, sorry, uh, all the way over here. Uh, thanks, John. Hi, uh, Charlie uh, from Toyota. Um, I have a question. Um, I was at uh, an event, I think earlier last month, it was the um, like Cold War analogy event. Um, and they were talking about how um, China is surrounded by a bunch of very powerful countries 
which didn't exist, right, like when the Soviet Union rose. And so that has the possibility to limit the growth of China. I was thinking about that um, in relation to when the Japanese defense minister came here last week and they were talking about the principles of democracy and the principles of rule of law and how those are important not only in the U.S.-Japan relationship, but US, like important to spread globally. So we talked about, right, you talked about the lack of U.S. leadership in the region. Is Japan a substitute for the United States in the region? And if not, is Japan willing to build a coalition of like-minded partners in the region to talk about democracy and things like that? So I, I think I'll take that one and then we'll, we'll wrap up. Um, uh, Japan is the most popular country in Asia, um, outside of China and Korea. <laughs> but in South and Southeast Asia, in opinion poll after opinion poll, Japan has a sizable lead over any other country. Um, and in some Southeast Asian countries, when people are asked, what leader do you trust the most, uh, Shinzo Abe wins. Um, so there's a lot of soft power there, not in China and South Korea. Uh, but in South and Southeast Asia. Um, Japan has also played a key role keeping the um, post-TPP, post-Trans-Pacific Partnership trade liberalization going with the CPTPP. And um, Abe has uh, himself a very good relationship with everyone from ScoMo in Canberra to Delhi. You know, if you Google uh, Modi hugging uh, under Google Images, you will find more hugs of Abe than anyone. So in, in all those ways, yes. But ultimately, Japan is not in a position to completely replace the US. Um, the US has bilateral alliances in the region. Japan does not. We have security commitments. We tend to lead the most important trade liberalization efforts. Um, so Japan is a, can't think of the right metaphor. Japan is a nice, uh, we're very lucky that Shinzo Abe has decided to um, shore up rules and norms and institutions in Asia and trade, which is not something people would have predicted for Japan 10 or 20 years ago, has shored up that scaffolding of stability in Asia, um, but it's not an enduring structure without the US, probably. Uh, and if it were, uh, it would be news to Japanese foreign ministry diplomats, because that's not what they're planning. Um, they want to play a leading role, I think, but, but the US is indispensable to that. Uh, but we are lucky uh, in the sense that um, almost every leader we've talked about with the probable exception of Xi Jinping, wants more of the US and Asia, not less. Um, so there's something there to work with um, if, we can, uh, if we can find it and get our act together. Let me um, uh, thank the panel. We'll turn it over to the security panel and really scare you. Uh, but let's thank uh, Jude and Ray and Amy and Victor. Oh, that's about two minutes in my book. Okay. <laughs> Change of plans yet again. We're going. Ladies and gentlemen, we're on the second panel. This is a security panel. So the first panel, we had the political leadership, um, you know, to quote a former British prime minister in the vernacular of his day, uh, you know, what runs the world? Events, dear boy, events. So now we're going to talk about the events which drive the, the decisions that our political leaders must lead on and respond to. So I have no better colleagues on this uh, panel with me uh, to discuss those security issues that we forecast through 2020 uh, in the uh, Indo-Pacific. Uh, then my colleague to my immediate right, Bonnie Glazer, known to 
most of us, that's for sure. Bodhi's our Senior Advisor for Asia and Director at the China Power Project here at CSIS, has an eminent career uh, as a consultant to various US government offices, um, Senior Advisor, Freeman Chair in China Studies, served as a member of the Defence Department's Defence Policy Ch Board uh, back in 1987, BA in Political Science from Boston University, MA in Econ uh, International Economics from SAIS. Uh, Greg Poling, down the far right, certainly not of that political persuasion though, uh, is the director of our Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative and fellow for uh, Southeast Asia program. Um, many of you would know Greg's work, prominent work, particularly in the Pacific Islands and on the South China Sea. <coughs> uh, next, I have my eminent colleague Nick Cheney, who's the deputy director, uh, deputy Japan chair, uh, working very closely with Dr. Green, uh, senior fellow as well, and his research focuses on US-Japan uh, issues. Uh, before his, uh, his tenure here with us at CSIS, um, Nick, uh, Nick was, in, uh, in the, was a news producer for Fuji Television here in Washington. Sue Terry, of course, known to most of you uh, for her eminent work on Korea, works very closely with Dr. Cha, uh, career in both in government, served at the NSC, served in the IC, uh, both under the uh, Bush and uh, Obama administrations, um, so has a PhD and an MA in international relations from the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts, and a BA in political science from New York University. So, uh, Patrick Buckins, my name. I'm the director here of the uh, US Alliances Project. From my accent, I'm not from the Commonwealth of Virginia, but from the Commonwealth, uh, specifically the Commonwealth of Australia. So I will uh, give a bit of a, uh, an Australian angle to some of the questions, should we, uh, should we arise with those? And why don't we get started with our first question. Please turn on your clickers. Please vote. Um, okay, in 2020, a major security incident is most likely to occur in the Korean Peninsula, South China Sea, East China Sea, Taiwan Strait, or E, the Sino-Indian border. Right, I'm going to exercise my universal suffrage and my vote. It's mandatory in your country. <laughs> it is indeed. Okay, I'm going to I'm going to say, my vote. Okay, well, can we flash up last year's results in a, in a moment after we discuss this? So interestingly, when we have a look at 18 and 19 results, there's going to be no great surprises. So overwhelmingly, colleagues uh, on the panel and and I and throughout the. Uh, audience here have gone for B, South China Sea, if my eyes are correct. Um, I'm going to turn to uh, Greg firstly, your uh, mate, you're away on this one. Can, what, do you, what do you think and what are the changes from your recall from, uh, from our last forecasts? Yeah, I agree. Um, if I remember, I think South China Sea has topped the list on all but one of the Asia forecasts that we've done. Uh, and luckily, there has been no major escalation on any of those. Uh, but the problem with the South China Sea, I think, is that you have so many dynamics at play where we could wake up tomorrow and see, you know, a Chinese fishing boat rammed and sunk, a Vietnamese fishing boat, and the Coast Guard got involved, and, and you're in a fight, excuse me, that nobody's looking for. Uh, you know, over the course of the last three years, since China effectively finished its major island building and finished most of the major deployments of military uh, equipment to the islands, it's allowed a persistent Chinese deployment of Coast Guard and paramilitary forces in a way that's completely upended the status quo for the Southeast Asian parties, at least. 
So day in and day out now, you have harassment of Vietnamese and Malaysian oil and gas operations, constant harassment of fishing operations, and assertion of Chinese fishing rights. So there's literally hundreds of players out there hopped up on nationalism, encouraged to push the envelope, any one of whom could be the spark that triggers a conflict that escalates before anybody can, can uh, really put a break on it. And for the U.S., of course, if that escalation involves the Philippines, it brings in the very real possibility that we get dragged in whether or not we wanted to in the first place. Okay, so we, we, if we look at our figures, folks, uh, you can see we had a very similar result uh, last year. 18, we had, uh, we had Korea as the issue, and that's when we were sort of still in very much in rocket man phase, weren't we? So it sort of, our voting patterns certainly reflect the issues of the day uh, from our audience participation. Does anyone else want to uh, jump in at this stage on South China Sea? Bonnie, we've got, we're going to talk Taiwan uh, probably in the next slide or two. Uh, if, you've got, if you've got anything to add at the moment on that. I would just add the key word here, of course, is security incident, right? So we're not talking about an attack. Um, the uh, right. U.S. Navy does sail through the Taiwan Strait on pretty much a monthly basis. Uh, and that has happened under every administration. It is what is new is that the Trump administration is now announcing these uh, publicly or making it known. Uh, but we are not seeing incidents in the Taiwan Strait like we saw in October of 2018 when a Chinese destroyer came within 45 yards of a U.S. Uh, Navy destroyer that was conducting a, a FANA in the South China Sea. So uh, I think that the, the possibility of that kind of incident in Taiwan Strait, I think, is virtually nil. So we could talk about potential for other scenarios, but if it's a security incident, then I completely agree it is South China Sea. Uh, uh, Nick, please. Yeah, just briefly, I, uh, I think there are two people who chose East, East China Sea. Uh, I think that might reflect, um, you know, diplomatic events that are planned in the coming year, uh, perhaps Xi Jinping's visit to Japan and some diplomatic engagement that has taken place, uh, which is important because it introduces an element of stability in, in Japan-China relations. But I would just emphasize uh, um, that the operational tempo in the East China Sea has not changed. Uh, I think the Ministry of Defense in Japan uh, noted that between April and September of last year, they had to scramble uh, air self-defense force jets over 300 times. Um, so the engagement with China is important. That element of stability is important. Uh, but fundamentally, I don't think the, the dynamics have changed in terms of uh, China's attempts at, at coercion in the East China Sea. So I just want to flag that. Thanks, Nick. And I'm going I'm to ask a little bit more about uh, Xi's visit to uh, Tokyo coming up, uh, I think, as we get down the path on, on, uh, in a couple of more slides. So have you got anything to add on that one, um, on, on the Korea vote for this year, as yeah. opposed to 2018, where it was quite high? Yes, no, I, I, I agree that it went down. I, I do think it's going to be very hard, or it's unlikely for us to return to 2017 crisis like environment, fire and fury stage. I think it's because both Kim Jong-un and Trump does not have an incentive to, to return to something like that. Um, Kim Jong-un, you know, it appears like when he, with his uh, statement that came out at the end of the year, it was pretty really tough, it was very hard. but. He does not want to return to 2017. And I would just say, it does not mean that there's not going to be a provocation. In fact, 
there will be a provocation. Um, there's a number of things that North Koreans can do to return to provocation. They can showcase, test, deploy number of weapons and weapons platforms, including deploying mobile um, uh, platforms and medium-range missile over Japan and a satellite, uh, a satellite launch even, or a submarine-based ballistic missile. I mean, there's many things they can, they can do, but I don't think he would actually cross the, necessarily do an ICBM test or a nuke test, because Kim knows that's going to to really infuriate Trump. So, and I just think, you know, it's, so there will be provocations, but I don't think there will be a major security incident as such. Good. We can all sleep well tonight because we've got nothing on the horizon that we're seeing that's going to uh, keep us uh, ha from having an excellent 2020. Can we bring up the next question, please? All right. Speaking of elections, we're going to have our own little election. Okay. So following President size. Uh, re-election, cross-strait relations will. Remember to turn them on. Wait for those votes to get up a little bit more. I know there's about 110 I've seen so far out there. There we go, look at that. All right, the Goldilocks solution wins out. Um, we're going to slightly deteriorate. Um, Bonnie, I'm going to go to you on this one, obviously. Um, so a couple of things. Were you surprised about the, the, the nature of the, and I think it was 57%, if I'm correct? Yes. We saw a FONOP, I think the Shiloh, USS Shiloh, last week through the Taiwan Strait, which I would imagine is a you know sort of message to not only Taiwan, but to, to China, based on, on the results. Um, you know, she's, uh, President Tsai gave that, that, that uh, interview a, f uh, a week or so ago, or two weeks ago, you know, free demonstrations, our way of life, we cherish our way of life, um, clearly aimed at both Beijing and Washington. So one, were you surprised at the result? Two, the, 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 the level of the result uh, and her comments. We haven't seen anyone, a president from time, speak that way in some time, so I'm interested to see, based on not only the vote we've seen here, but, but her comments and your thoughts. There was nothing I think that was surprising really about uh, the, the aggregate numbers, 57%, uh, 8.1 million votes was a record high. Uh, turnout really was quite high. Uh, uh, the fact that she won and the DPP won a majority again in the legislative UN uh, was not a surprise. I think what was more interesting is uh, digging into the legislative UN votes and in Taiwan, you vote for a, a, a person in a single party, in, in, in a single person district, but then you also vote for a party list uh, candidate. And the vote there for the KMT and the DPP was about the same, 33% uh, uh, plus a little bit more for the DPP and 11.2% for this new uh, Taiwan People's Party that the mayor of Taipei, Ko Wenzhou, has stood up. So the story really is that there's emerging third parties that are becoming gradually more influential in Taiwan politics. And uh, my takeaway is that many people who voted for Tsai Ing-wen, they were really voting against the KMT candidate, Han Guo-yu, who they thought was a very poor choice, but in the legislative UN, they did not vote for the DPP. So yes for Tsai, not necessarily for her party. Uh, and that leads me uh, to conclude that uh, for, 
because of that outcome and also for other reasons, I don't think that Beijing is going to panic and say, well, time is no longer on our side. Somehow Taiwan is going to drift towards independence. Uh, China's got a lot of tools to deal with Taiwan. Um, they're economic, they're diplomatic, they're military. Um, and I personally think that Xi Jinping has many issues on his plate. Um, Hong Kong being one, slow down in the economy, friction with the United States. Um, and uh, it's arguable whether or not they PLA actually has the capabilities to seize and hold uh, Taiwan. So in my view, uh, greatly improve or slightly improve is very optimistic because mm -hmm. if we look at the statements that have come out of China so far, it's a restatement of, of their policy. It's tough. We're not going to talk to Tsai because she hasn't accepted one China 1992 consensus. So I would be surprised if there uh, is an improvement. But at the same time, I don't expect, and obviously uh, very few people in this room uh, expect, great deterioration. So the real question is, does it stay the same? Does it slightly deteriorate? We did hear um, the um, uh, standing uh, member of the Politburo, uh, Wang Yang, say the other day, restated policy, and essentially reaffirmed that, well, while, while we're going to take these measures of pressure against Taiwan, we're also going to continue to do things to try to win over especially the youth. Right? So they want to have the carrots along with the sticks. So my takeaway is uh, just, is it going to stay the same or slightly deteriorate? I vote in favor of slightly deteriorate because I expect that they will want to send warnings to Tsai Ing-wen not to go too far. And she's been tough, as you say, but that's been gradual over a period of the last couple of years. Uh, she has said now that, uh, and she said this I think for the first time a couple of years ago, that Beijing must uh, uh, accept the fact that the Republic of China exists. So that's a, that's a pretty strong statement and unlikely that, the, that Beijing is going to do that. So I, I expect there, the, again, warnings to Tsai, also warnings to the Trump administration not to go too far in our interpretation of the One China policy. Uh, and of course, the, the, the youth vote was really uh, a critical component for her victory, right, uh, amongst Taiwan's youth. The, this sort of changing, evolving nature of the under 25s, under 30s who see themselves uh, as, as Taiwanese, as a, as a separate yes. entity. Their identity is very much as a Taiwanese. Yes. Right. Thank you. Anyone, uh, anyone else on the panel want to want to jump in uh, on this one? Greg. Since Bonnie did, and I'll just point out that the Shiloh did not conduct a FONOP. You cannot conduct a FONOP over the Taiwan Straits, international waters. It, the Chinese also don't challenge the fact that they're international waters. Thank you for bringing that up, Greg. I was testing him, and he passed in public, so well done. I decided not to do it, but you did. <laughs> I'll get him back. Okay. Um, so our audience uh, largely agrees with, um, uh, with Bonnie's statement, so that's a good thing. Um, we are now going to go to our next slide. 2010, President Trump's priority regarding the Korean Peninsula bilateral treaty with North Korea, getting $5 billion from the Special Measures Agreement. And I'll ask Sue just to basically walk us through for some of us who may not be sure what the issue is on that. Withdrawal of US forces, ensuring South Korea and Japan maintain dysomia. Nothing Trump's goals, he will be taken by private events. And Ambassador Harris's moustache is not on there, which those of you who are following Korean media at the moment will know that seems to be preoccupying everyone's mind, and it's a wonderful moustache that it is, in my opinion. Okay, uh, so we're going to go to you. The vote looks pretty... We just let people just come in. 
looking pretty pretty strong out there for nothing. <laughs> I, I don't. I, so I will tap dance for five minutes because no. if there's nothing to talk about, it's going to be uh, difficult. I, I don't think honestly it'll be nothing. I think I think President Trump. Uh, I think it'll be a combination of A and B. Okay, um, A and B, in the sense that I think he will still, if he can, would like to have some sort of deal with North Korea. Um, and he is pursuing you know, this, uh, right now we're going through the burden sharing discussion right now. So, and A and B could potentially lead to unlikely scenario, but even C, not withdrawal, but even potentially reduction in this sense. If there is an agreement with A, but there's no agreement on B. This is sort of what Victor and Michael was talking about, also like a perfect storm. Then I could see sort of C being in trouble. D, I agree with that. I don't think it's President Trump's personal priority, even though Trump administration officials might be interested in that. Um, so earlier uh, panel, I think the only 4% pe of people, four people said, you know, will improve relations with North Korea. Here I'm with, uh, on, with Victor on this. I don't think necessarily that interim deal is likely, but we cannot completely discount that possibility. Um, when I talked about the scenario of North Korea returning to some sort of provocations, we still have a lot of time to go before November election. There is still a possibility of a potential deal. Now, not a denuclearization deal. I didn't say it was a good deal. It would be a freeze for some sort of, you know, what, what Victor was talking about earlier. So I wouldn't completely discount that possibility. And also, earlier panel, 30% said relations with South Korea will deteriorate, and it's because of this B, uh, special measures agreement. They had, U.S. and South Korea had six rounds of negotiations. It failed. There's, they're nowhere right now. South Koreans are trying to be somewhat creative by trying to go, okay, well, maybe we can come up with this five billion number by, with indirect contributions. We can say we're going to buy some uh, uh, military equipment from the United States. And, you know, we're going to pay for anti-piracy operations in Gulf of Aden. They're trying to be like, hey, here's a five billion number. See if that works. I don't quite think it will work, um, but that's what they're doing. I, but so it's, um, it is a potentially problem. Now, after the sixth round of the negotiation failed, I don't know if you saw in the Wall Street Journal this piece, uh, Pompeo and Asper wrote uh, this piece on, they called it um, South Korea is an ally, not a dependent, really pushing for it. So I think B will be there. I wouldn't discount A. I certainly don't agree that it's not, you know, it's nothing. It's President Trump is still very engaged on, on North Korean issue. And, and can you just, just briefly walk us through on SMA, just a bit of a history. Yeah. So it's, my understanding is yeah. conducted every five years currently. Right. The administration wants to move it to an annual, uh, an annual discussion. Right. And we're talking 200% up on what current... It's 500% up. Right, 500% yeah. up on right. what current... Uh, right. uh, the current figure is, which is about a billion a year, right? Yes, uh, you know, you're, you're exactly right. So this was not supposed to be a yearly agreement, but it all fell apart. So last year, after 10 rounds of negotiations, they finally came to about a billion number. Right. And that was already a stretch from South Korean perspective. So for, from there, for President Trump, and he came up with this number, um, apparently, it was directly came from the White House, um, this 500% increase, which is, of course, uh, South Koreans are like, <laughs> and, and, and the, you know, the Trump administration is a sort of trying to match that number now, trying to come up with ways to get to that 5 billion. That's why I say South Koreans are, well, can we give President Trump some plausible, semi-plausible way of saying, 
he, he got something out of South Korea by giving him that number, but by doing other things like indirect contribution. But I still think, uh, you know, there's a potential uh, to get somewhere if we both sides can, you know, uh, sort of, there's a place to meet, but we'll see. I think it'll be very tough. Again, six rounds. Now, there was a lot of drama. You know, right now we're nowhere, and you saw that op-ed. So we'll see, we'll see where it goes. Um, were, you, were you surprised at that op-ed? I kind of didn't quite expect that. I, I, that I did that not course. expect that because that, that, I mean, that kind of threw me off. And I think that threw a lot of South Koreans off, to, too. And I think in this way, you know, the progressives and the conservatives, South Korea is a very divided society. But on this, I think everybody's united on pushing back the United States, including the public. And the public is, they're not anti-U.S. When you look at all the polls, they're still very pro-United States and pro-alliance. Um, President Trump on this issue, obviously, is not popular. But on pushing back on this uh, special measures agreement, I think the entire South Korean society is united on this. Thank you. And, uh, and United on discussions on Ambassador Harris's moustache. And uh, Nick, please, Japan's perspective. I would just note parenthetically uh, that Japan is going to face a similar challenge uh, later this year. Um, Japanese government has the luxury of observing the pressure that South Korea is enduring uh, and adjusting accordingly. But I think more broadly, um, you know, this gets to the public debate about U.S. allies in Asia. And instead of talking about the capabilities that our allies are bringing to bear, the importance of interoperability, networking, defense cooperation in the region, um, you know, the dynamic is very transactional. Uh, and that's something we, we, we probably need to get away from. Um, but this is coming in a U.S.-Japan relations context uh, later in the year. So uh, what our South Korean friends managed to negotiate will probably have a huge impact on the Japanese negotiations also. So just to add one thing, which really concerns me, um, CSIS Korea Chair, we, we beyond parallel, we did this um, report, uh, Victor and Andy colleagues did this big report where we looked back on for 30 years of all the available public statements made made by President Trump. And on this issue, on, on questioning alliance commitment, on the true presence, he's been consistent. We're going back to 1990 Playboy interview that President Trump did. And he was talking about why we have troops there. It's too expensive. It's, they need to be paying more. So this is a consistent and persistent theme for President Trump personally. So that is very concerning. Yeah, I think it goes pretty, it's not every day you get to say Playboy here at CSIS. <laughs> Uh, but it goes back to about 1987. I mean, the New York Times uh, full-page ad he took out in 86, 87. Uh, same, same consistent message in a more reputable uh, uh, publication. Okay, um, we've had our vote. So, E, I must say I was surprised. Um, I thought, uh, didn't think nothing would be the answer. I, I, I thought B was probably going to be where we're at, but we did have a high vote for there. Uh, interesting to see next year, should we... Uh, well, we would still technically be, if the president does not win the election, we'd still be in his administration. It'd be interesting to see next year how we go. Uh, uh, next question, please. For staying on the career theme, we're heading a little, little to our north. So you're going to be up on the plate again. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, something our friends in North Korea don't get to do is vote, so we are going to have our vote. Please consider the, uh, all the options before you, uh, before you vote away. Remember to turn back on. All right, give it.
give it another minute or so before we shut the voting down. Okay, so it's looking pretty solid as votes are being adjusted there that we're going to see a continuation of the, of the nuclear missile testing. I saw, we know yesterday we had a senior North Korean official at the disarmament talk sort of blame sanctions and blame everyone else and uh, walk away from, uh, from the previous position. We knew this was coming. Um, can you ex walk us through that? Were you surprised by that? Are you surprised by this, uh, by the vote from our votes from our colleagues in the audience? And where do you think we're going to go? I know we've talked about yeah. this over this panel, but um, interested to hear. Uh, so, I would agree with sort of. There's a number of things like C continuing with nuclear missile testing. I'm not sure if they're going to go actually to as I mentioned a little bit earlier. What kind of missile testing is important? Certainly, they will do missile testing, right? Even medium range. Or I told you, there's a number of things that they can do. And ICBM or nuke testing is a little bit different because that is really crossing that threshold, and they know that's going to personally upset Trump. And still, North Koreans, even with their harsh statement that came out uh, at the end of the year, they still left some room. They didn't personally criticize Trump yet. They said, you know, there is a potential for a, uh, you know, sort of um, freeze. They indicated there's a potential for freeze deal if, you know, conditions are right. So they still left that room. So I would say the Kim Jong Un's priority is still trying to get to some sort of agreement with United States. Give if and what that looks like is massive sanctions relief for giving up some of the things. It's a lopsided deal. Now failing that and down there, that's what they're prepared for. And that's what their statement was all about, preparing the public for this long, difficult year ahead. So they will still want A, but if they don't get A, what they would then do is a combination of this provocation, not quite an ICBM nuke test, but provocation to dial up pressure while continuing to appeal to China, D, uh, for more support. In fact, right now, China and Russia have a, a proposal at the United Nations Security Council. They have a draft resolution up looking for sanctions relief, right? The Chinese are now saying, you know, let's lift sanctions on um, that affect North Korean exports from seafood uh, to textile to ban on North Korean workers abroad, like all of that is there. And there's a lot of pressure uh, to the, on the United States to lift sanctions. Even South Korea, the South Korean government is now talking about potentially going independently, moving independently on inter-Korea projects. Um, so it is not a, it's sort of a mixture of things. I would say still priority is if they can get it, why not? A deal that works for them. If not, continue to muddle through with some level of provocation and then working with the Chinese and, and finding their own way and then see what happens after the election. Thanks, Sue. Uh, that was a very complex <laughs> algorithm of A, C's, B's and D's, uh, but I think the logic was correct. Um, I, I must say, uh, again, I'd be interested to see next year as we've gone down the path where our audience votes for our 2021 Asia forecast. Um, Anyone else before we move on, noting we've got nine to get through on our panel in about half an hour, so I think we've done career. We, we might, uh, might move on. Okay. Um, Hong Kong was huge in the news cycle uh, a month ago with bushfires and impeachments and the holiday period, which sort of come off the, 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 our conscious a bit. Um, I'm interested to, to, to hear what Bonnie's got to say on this. So, uh, full suffrage is what we get to exercise here with our clickers. 
No, uh, no great appetite for that. So non-kinetic -co coercive measures to dissipate the movement. Very strong voting in that one, and I think that's largely what they're doing, uh, the PLA or the, the, the Chinese in, the, in, in Hong Kong. Kinetic coercive measures, so we're not going to see any PLA violence, uh, according to our, uh, our audience. Uh, and D, not much appetite for that. I'm going to have my vote. There you go. Okay, uh, Bonnie, pretty... We're pretty, uh, pretty convinced in this crowd about, um, again, a bit of a Goldilocks solution uh, where, where things are at the moment. We have gone out of the news cycle on this. Can you tell us just where the, movement, the Hong Kong protest movement's at at the moment? Are you surprised about that vote? And what other options do you think are available to Beijing? I want to start by looking at that C, the use of uh, kinetic uh, measures. And it is interesting that when the Chinese held the 70th anniversary of the founding of the PRC and that military parade, we did have analysts, uh, some of them predict, that uh, Xi Jinping would find it a humiliation if protests were going on in Hong Kong while that celebration was taking place. And there were people who predicted that uh, the PLA would you know, roll tanks into, into Hong Kong. Um, that, in, from my perspective, really was never a likely outcome. Uh, the challenge of uh, really cracking down on the protests in Hong Kong is very unlike what the Chinese faced in June of 1989. This is not a, 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 a group of people who are sitting in one place in Tiananmen Square. They are spread in a very, very large area. We're looking at upwards of one million people. What are the Chinese options? Um, I mean, really, use of force means killing a lot of people, and it would be all over media, as everybody is out there with their phones and taking uh, pictures and videos. I, I see that as highly unlikely, uh, and I think that the Chinese have uh, a lot of other options. And unfortunately, I think that uh, among those options, really making Hong Kong um, more uh, subject to the kinds of policies that we see on the mainland. And I think the most important one going forward is going to be the implementation of patriotic education. So this has been successful in mainland China, convincing a lot of people to be more nationalistic and support the Chinese Communist Party and to restrain or refrain from criticizing it. Um, people in Hong Kong uh, are, are uh, exposed at a fairly young age to civics, uh, <laughs> which uh, we probably had classes in high school as well. And so they really are very strong supporters of freedom and democracy. The Chinese believe that this is in part uh, a, a source uh, of the problem. So I think we will see more non-kinetic uh, measures uh, that are going to be used to influence the attitudes, particularly of people and young people um, in Hong Kong, not, not necessarily a, an option that was up there, but part of that non-kinetic response. You know, A is not is accommodate the protester demand of full suffrage. That essentially is the most difficult of the five demands. Right. I don't actually see the Chinese um, acceding to any of the demands, uh, even the likelihood that uh, Carrie Lam will step down is looking less likely than I think um, it did uh, a while ago. I think she's at Davos this week, uh, spouting this sort of, you know, pro uh, pro Beijing positions. So I'm I'm really of the view that uh, the Chinese will are not likely to use force. They're going to look for non-kinetic means. They will continue to crack down on protesters and. 
arrest people and uh, imprison them. Um, and uh, this is this is going to go on uh, for for a while. I don't I don't see any near term solution. So so the fact that it's kind of gone quiet in the, in in the Western media and so forth is actually an example of what you suggested, this wait and see approach and, and sort of let the movement slowly, you know, deflate, if you will, rather than any sort of, you know, direct kinetic action, just let the let the air come out of itself and, and that's kind of largely what we're seeing. Is that is that is that I don't, a summary or I don't think that the movement is um really deflating, as, right. as you say. It may be to some extent out of the media, but the protests continue, maybe not on the large scale right. that they did. But what we saw in 2014 after the umbrella movement was really that the protests stopped. Uh, I don't think that that's going to happen this time. I think the protest pockets of protests are going to continue. The protesters, I think, made a strategic mistake when they occupied the universities. Right. This was this did not work for them. Uh, so it was much better when they would just decide, oh, we're going to go here today. We're going to demonstrate. Yeah, right, and we're, right. Then we're going to make trouble over here and throw Molotov cocktails. It was much more difficult to snuff them out. The university occupation was a bad decision. I think they're going to regroup and they're going right. to go back to their former tactics. So a focal point, if you will, for, uh, for the movement to coalesce. Okay, uh, we're going to remain on the Hong Kong theme in question six. Um, okay, ladies and gentlemen, this is about how the United States uh, will or should respond to the situation in Hong Kong, noting it, it remains ongoing and might be out of our, uh, our view at the moment. A, comparatively silent. B, political condemnation. C, sanctions. Uh, on the, you know, we saw the Hong Kong Human Rights Democracy Act of late 2019 revoke all or part of Hong Kong's special status under the 92 Act, or E, walk away with, from phase two negotiations, obviously the trade negotiations with China. This one's a close vote. It is. Let that play out a bit. Tied. All right, well, I'll get to be the tiebreaker. No, I won't. <laughs> Maybe I will. All right. All right, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to go for, this is embarrassing. Everybody's going to go for, you voted. I'm going to go for E. No, okay. <laughs> I'm going to go for I'm going to go for C myself. There it is. Okay, uh, Bonnie, we're going to go to you, but I also want to bring in um, some other folks on this one because um, obviously this is not just about the situation in Hong Kong, but how the United States will respond. So, uh, Bonnie, I might open with you, and then we'll just go down the line on this one. Okay, I'll start and I'll be brief. Uh, the United States can't solve all the problems in Hong Kong. I mean, Hong Kong is, in fact, part of China. We've recognised it as part of China. Uh, we don't have an enormous tool set. Uh, that we can use uh, to influence uh, Beijing's policies on this. Uh, I think that the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act was, is certainly controversial. Uh, my understanding is that the president largely had the authorities even before that, uh, that legislation became law. So if the Chinese actually used uh, force in Hong Kong, 
even without that act, uh, we, we probably would have imposed sanctions on, on some individuals in Beijing. Uh, but it was a political statement, and the president signed it. And importantly, he um, had a, 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 there was a, a statement that was made alongside as he signed the law, reserving the right to implement it as he sees fit. Um, and so that signing statement, I think, is important. What I think that the United States should do is, yes, political condemnation, uh, but I think we should do more options that perhaps are not really listed uh, up there. We should reinforce the strengths uh, that Hong Kong has. We should, there, actually, there are still many aspects of one country, two systems that remain strong in Hong Kong. We should highlight those. We, we should continue to remind China and the rest of the world that the success of one country, two systems in Hong Kong serves everybody's interests. So we should highlight what's working, uh, and uh, we should really seek ways to strengthen this one country, two systems. The failure of one country, two systems is not going to bode well for the future of uh, China's relations with Taiwan either. So I would recommend um, that uh, we encourage businesses to stay, that our allies also encourage those that have companies that are in Hong Kong, or that we continue to highlight the importance of the financial um, system in Hong Kong uh, to China and the rest of the world. And we call out China where it is doing bad things. We warn them. We deter them. Uh, but I think that revoking Hong Kong's special status harms a lot of people in, in, in Hong Kong. And I think under current circumstances, that would not be a good choice. Okay. Sage advice. Anyone else down the, uh, down the table want to have a, uh, put some views forward on this one? Or should we, uh, should we move forward? Yep, no one's, uh, no one's keen to, uh, to go too much on this. Noting we've got a couple to get through and time's catching us up. Uh, okay, thank you very much. Close vote. Interesting to see uh, folks uh, that the split between political condemnation and, and putting sanctions. I, I did find that quite, quite interesting. Question seven, please. Okay. Uh, 2020, which country will align more closely with China? We had, uh, and we're going to bring up our results from the last two years on this one. Okay, Singapore, Malaysia, Philippines, Vietnam, and Australia. Which country will align more closely with China? I don't think any single vote's going to, uh, going to affect this one too much. And we don't have any major changes from the last couple of years. Okay, let's see that vote get up a bit. I know we're, we can get to about 110. Wow. All right, Greg. I mean, I get it. Uh, <laughs> it's not the way I voted. Uh, so can we bring up the last year? Sorry, sorry, mate. Can we uh, ask the folks about last year's just to give us a bit of comparison? Yeah. So I, you know, I think that the 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 um, kind of the gut feeling here, right, is is we have a vision of the Philippines as as a pro-American ally, and therefore everything you hear from the Duterte government suggests they're swinging wildly to China. That may or may not have been true in late 2016, but what right. we've seen for two years now is Duterte kind of ramming his head up against what is politically acceptable in the Philippines and being knocked back. And so on every measure of, say, the U.S. security relationship, things are back to where they were uh, when he came into office. On pretty much everything he's attempted with the Chinese, um, you know, there's really been no mill-to-mill -mill cooperation. He makes a lot of splashy, 
statements, and you had the, the China Coast Guard make a historic visit last week, but all of those get just torn apart in the press. Um, China's approval ratings in, in the Philippines now in every poll are lower than they've been for years, largely because of China's two things. One, its inability to deliver any of the pledged investment that it's offered Duterte. Um, except in the online gambling space where there's enormous criticism, things like criminal rings and prostitution. And then two, China's inability or unwillingness to stop beating up Filipinos in the South China Sea. And so, you know, if you're talking about either where Duterte was in 2016 or where it is today, I don't see how it can get more pro-China. Um, it's just not politically possible for him. So I actually would argue that Malaysia is more likely to swing from moderately pro-China to slightly more moderately pro-China. If I'm looking at that list, I don't think anybody's going to go running into the Beijing camp. Um, but all of the political incentives in Manila are for Duterte to tack toward the middle, well, continue to tack toward the middle, which is what he's been doing uh, for the last two years. So Malaysia was a, it was a new... Uh... Yeah. A new option for us this year compared to 18-19. Can I just ask our, uh, our team just to bring up our 2020 results, just to have a look where the Philippines were for 2019 at 55 votes. We had quite a large Manhattan Tower there, and there we go. So there you go, 55 votes. Um, thank you for everyone who came back from last year. <laughs> okay. Um, ladies and gentlemen, I, I want to keep uh, ploughing on. We've got nine questions on our panel and we want to get everyone out two for a coffee. So two more. Um, so no great change from 19. Interesting. In 18, uh, uh, Sue, so we saw the South Korea was nominated uh, to, to grow more close to China. Um, okay, question eight. Okay, this one's about aligning more closely with the United States. So, choices are A, Singapore, B, Malaysia, C, Philippines, D, Vietnam, E, Australia. Now, we note, I, I want to note here, align more closely. So, that would assume that there's a baseline now for alignment. Who's going who's to jump over that baseline and increase their alignment to the United States? Okay. Okay. So, not who is, you know, the United States' closest ally is not the question. All right. Votes are in. They're pretty solid. Look at that. Uh, we see uh, we see Vietnam there and uh, Australia swinging even more closer to the United States, aligning more closer than it already is. That's interesting. We can have a, a quick chat about that, I think. Greg, uh, you're on the plate. I'm going to ask you to, uh, you're our man on, uh, on Vietnam. Uh, tell us where things are at. Why do you think that vote is where it's at? We don't have the figures from last year, which would have been interesting to see. Uh, I don't recall those. I know I was in this panel last year. Greg. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I voted with the, the audience on this one, although I think it's a tough call, um, because I think in this case, uh, actions that are external to the U.S. have as much to do with anything we can do, right? If China treats Vietnam the way it did for four months last year, you know, with hundreds of votes harassing Vietnamese fishers, then it's a no-brainer that Vietnam aligns more closely with the U.S. But there's also a lot of incentive right now for the Vietnamese leadership to try to pave over some of the damage to the, uh, the relationship. You've got, as, as Amy pointed out on the last panel, the specter that the, you know, eye of Sauron on the trade front could turn toward Vietnam as the trade deficit with Vietnam balloons as a result of diversion of investment from China. Uh, and with the Vietnamese uh, leadership transition coming up in 2021, there's going to be a lot of incentive for Chong to try to keep things smooth with Beijing. Uh, 
but everything being equal, it seems more likely to me than not that the Chinese do continue to kick the crap out of the Vietnamese this year, and that there is a lot of reason for Vietnam to continue to tilt in its own way toward the U.S., but I also think there's a very good chance that the Philippines, led by the armed forces and the defense secretary, continues what they really started by late 2017, which is quietly reinforcing the security relationship with the U.S., while he, letting Duterte say whatever he wants in the soapbox. Anyone else uh, have a view on this one? I found, I found Australia interesting, and again, emphasising that baseline, not who's most currently aligned, but to see, it, see an increase there. I, I did find uh, the Australia vote not surprising, although that, uh, again, probably a little higher than I expected um, this year. No surprises there, I think, across the panel um, from Singapore, particularly Malaysia, noting Greg's uh, comment for the previous panel, we were talking about closer alignment with China, right? I, just a quick mention here. I think that um, one of the biggest disappointments for this administration has certainly been their gross misreading of the results of the Malaysian election, right? Their assumption was the opposition has come to power. Najib had been forced to swing too much toward China because of his own corruption and the need for China to cover one MDB's debts. And so the opposition must, therefore, swing to the U.S. They forgot that Mahathir is over 90 years old, and 90-year-olds very rarely change their minds. Mahathir did not suddenly become pro-American while he was out of power. Uh, and as a result, you were seeing exactly what we should have expected, right? A Mahathir that is both somewhat anti-China, but much more anti-American. And unless we see a transition of power to Anwar, which seems all but impossible this year, uh, you're not going to see some radical sw uh, swing in, in Malaysia. Now, that, you know, the future could hold a whole lot of different things, but as long as Mahathir is in power, Malaysia is not going to become a suddenly pro-American partner. Yeah, I mean, just commenting there, if I will, on, on Australia, from, from my point of view, you know, polling in Australia remains very consistent on the US alliance, that being strong support for the alliance. Where we see the dips uh, are particularly, I think, uh, sentiments around the Trump administration and President Trump personally. Uh, I'd be very interested to see should there be uh, a change in administration here in Washington? My personal view is there won't be, but should there be, depending on who the candidate is, let's assume, you know, the Democratic candidate is Mr. Biden, and Biden, let's assume he won it. Be very interested to see uh, in a year or two how those Australia votes would look, and I would also be keen to see our friends down at the Lowy Institute, how their polling would do. They do excellent polling on the US alliance, uh, and be interested to see if those numbers start to rise back to, to levels we saw, particularly in the Obama administration. Okay, uh, we have got one more to get through. There it is, South China Sea. Greg is going to be to the plate. We've, we've already seen South China Sea was our number one security incident we identified back on slide one. Votes away. So what, now we're drilling down, if you will, into the specifics of what uh, is the most likely to take place in the South China Sea. All right, I think we can safely call it at this stage. Uh, so very, very uh, strong support, if you will. China successfully prevents new oil and gas exploration by other claimants. Noting I want to get to Q&A, um, Greg, can you just 
give us a couple of quick, concise points on, one, your thoughts on that. Do you agree with the audience? Where did you vote? And just explain to us how they would actually go about doing that. Yeah, I agree with the audience. Um, that's the way I voted. Uh, you know, A and B here are functionally impossible. The Philippine uh, Joint Exploration MOU has been frozen for months, and even if they magically signed it tomorrow, it's not going to actually happen this year. Um, same with the Code of Conduct. Nobody's talking about the Code of Conduct this year, and nobody in ASEAN has agreed with China that it should happen next year. That's a purely Chinese statement. Vietnam take legal action. If they're going to do it, they'll do it this year. They're ASEAN chair. They're on the UN Security Council. But they've got a leadership transition coming. Seems unlikely. I'll give you three to one odds at best. And that depends on how much the Chinese continue to push them. So that leaves D, which we're already seeing. Uh, China has... You know, China has for decades complained about new oil and gas exploration. And it did start 10 years ago or so really harassing new blocks. So when a country puts out a new block and starts exploration, they will go out and harass that. For the last 18 months or so, though, we've seen a radical change, which is that China is now physically interfering in even new drilling in existing blocks. So last year they started harassing Sarawak Shell drilling in blocks it's been operating in for years. It did the same to Rosneft for four months off the coast of Vietnam. Uh, we are seeing evidence that it returned and started harassing Malaysia again last month, although KL's trying to keep this quiet. So, you know, there will be times when, as Vietnam did last year, the Southeast Asians will stand up and they will put an enormous amount of effort and, and resources into showing that they're standing up to China, as the Vietnamese did. And they can win those battles one at a time, but they can't win this war, right? It is a war of attrition. China has too many boats. Vietnam had to scramble dozens, basically its entire Coast Guard force, for four months last year. They cannot possibly do that for every single new oil and gas well. So unless something changes, it will be functionally impossible for anybody who is not Sinook to drill for oil and gas in the South China Sea over the next couple of years. Interesting. And for 20... 21, you've got three to one odds. We can go back and see how odds play out from Greg. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, you got, you got, you've got five minutes. Uh, five, ten minutes we can go. Five minutes we can go. Quick questions, sir, over here, please. Thank you very much. Uh, my question is for Pauling. I'm Turk from The Voice of America. So, um, what kind of incident do you expect will happen? Uh, will it involve uh, like uh, firing? And uh, what will the U.S. do? Um, will it an incident between the U.S. and China, or between China and other countries? And what will the U.S. do to prevent such thing from happening? So I have I have terrible hearing. Can Can you just repeat the first part of your question? So I do apologise. So. Um, what kind of incident will happen in the South China Sea uh, this year? Will, will it be some kind of uh, friction between the U.S. and China, or between China and other countries? And what will the U.S. do in case such a thing happened? Okay, so what's going to happen in the South China Sea? Who's it going to be between? What is Washington's response? Uh, Greg, if we could go to you, please. Yeah, uh, I mean, so China's in the driver's seat. The administration is far too distracted. The South China Sea has been the least... Uh, dedicated part of the free and open Indo-Pacific when you look at the, the planks of, of the strategy. So it's, it is going to be all about what the U.S. does in reaction. We're not going to see a suddenly more proactive U.S. strategy in the South China Sea this year. 
look at last year, right? We are going to see more run-ins between Chinese law enforcement and regional uh, oil and gas operators. We will see more run-ins between Chinese fishers and regional law enforcement, as we just saw for almost a month uh, off the coast of Indonesia. Every one of those has within it the possibility that somebody screws up, that a Chinese maritime militia captain or a fisherman rams into somebody, and then they feel compelled to respond, and you get into this escalatory cycle. Uh, I think that the specifics are going to matter a whole lot here. If it happens to Vietnam, the U.S. is going to condemn it loudly and not much else. If it happens to the Philippines, there's an awful lot of incentive for the U.S. to signal support, maybe reinforce you know, Filipino assets on, in the theater, try to, pr try to convince China to de-escalate. Um, and if China calls our bluff, then what do we do? So these are extremely charged situations. Um, and I don't, you know, I don't necessarily think that that's going to happen this year. The problem is that every single day it is a greater than zero chance that we wake up to news that another Filipino fishing boat went down, as it did last June. Thanks, Greg. Uh, we're going to take one more question. Sir, I think you were first. Uh, Peter Humphrey, Intel Analyst and a former diplomat. Um, Sue, what is the um, most likely thing that Trump will settle as a minimum? Um, Michelle Bachelet is very distressed. There's you no know, human rights on the agenda. Most other analysts are very distressed that all other WMD are not on the agenda. What is the minimum that Trump would accept to cut a, a deal that he views as useful for the election? And more importantly, what should he be putting on the table as a minimum, given that there are several young beyonds, for example? So the biggest wild card in analyzing North Korea is not Kim Jong-un or North Korea, but it's Trump. So you're trying to ask me what Trump uh, is going to do or not do. So I think that's very difficult to answer. I think for President Trump, what's really interesting about what he might do with North Korea this year is what does the whole Soleimani killing and the Iran situation, does that make it more likely that he, he clearly really undercut this narrative that he's a paper tiger? There was this increasing narrative that he's a paper tiger, remember, this, ever since this whole fire and fury was dropped as he was wooing Kim and was exchanging love letters with Kim. But what does that do? So does it make it more likely that he might want to sort of say, okay, I might want a foreign policy win here. Um, in that case, though, he would have to give sanctions relief because that's what North Koreans want. That's what they demanded in Hanoi. We were ready, the United States was to open liaison office with North Korea, to give a peace declaration with North Korea, but Kim demanded massive sanctions relief. So there will be no deal unless we are willing to do that. And I, I, I think for President Trump, it's really hard to answer. For right now, I don't think he's willing to do that. But as a year goes by, does he say to himself, okay, I might be willing to give some sanctions relief? Again, as Victor said earlier in earlier panel, I don't think there's going to be anything more than some sanctions relief with uh, snapback measures for Yangbyon, plus maybe North Korea would throw in something. But that's the deal. It, it more or less looked like what Kim offered in Hanoi. But he would need, Kim would need massive sanctions relief, and I can't, 
you know, it, it now looks like at least President Trump is not going to go for that. You have to remember after Hanoi, when he came back, he was actually praised by even all the Democrats saying, hey, you didn't sign on to a bad deal. That was good. So does he try to just stick with that and just okay with status quo and muddle through? That's probably a likely possibility. But I was just saying you cannot discount the possibility that he changes his mind. And the wild card really here when you're assessing North Korea is President Trump. Okay. Uh, we might do one more quick question because we've only had two... Uh, let's go. I've, sorry, I've done left side. Over, over gentleman, blue tie. Yes, sir, you. Thank you, sir. And then we're going to go to a five-minute coffee break, folks, and then back for the security panel, uh, the economics panel that my, uh, my colleague Matt Goodman's going to run. <laughs> sir. You had mentioned the need for increased interoperability in the Indo-Pacific region. I was wondering how you would get past the blocks of tech release within the U.S. government and the procedures within the U.S. government. Uh, okay, Nick, I'm going to go to you on this one. Thank you. Yeah, certainly that's a, that's a challenge. Um, but I think strategically uh, that's got to be a fundamental objective if we're going to continue to shape uh, the regional security environment. Um, I think it's going to happen incrementally. Um, and just speaking about uh, Japan's recent actions, um, you know, you start with, with exercises and habits of cooperation. So uh, we had all these slides about Southeast Asia earlier. Um, you know, Japan's been doing a lot uh, with countries in Southeast Asia in the security realm that's, that's not very well publicized. Uh, exercises with Vietnam, the Philippines. Last year they did a quadrilateral with the United States, India, uh, and the Philippines. Um, so you have to start with forming those habits of of cooperation. Um, yes, there, there are challenges associated with, with information release. Um, there are challenges associated with defense industrial cooperation. There are challenges associated with the structure of the different alliance relationships we have uh, in the region. But I think in terms of signaling uh, about a common interest and a shared commitment um, to maintaining stability in the region, this networking dimension, the networking of alliance relationships uh, and, and habits of cooperation with, with like-minded countries is, is critical. Uh, and I think uh, the U.S. together with Japan and others is doing that. Uh, and I would expect that to, to continue in the year ahead. Thank you, Nick. And uh, also, we are, we, we are doing a lot of work here on alliance interoperability issues at that sort of tactical level, systems and so forth here at CSIS, because we do understand the strategic nature of your question. And, you know, if you can bubble systems up, then it gets to that political level. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to have to uh, finish our, our security panel. I, I do hope you got something out of it. Um, you're going to have a coffee and a tea, and you're going to be back here for five minutes before Matt Goodman takes us over on our economics panel. Thank you for attending. Okay, um, folks, we're going to get started, restarted. Um, if you're still up on the Sam Nunn Terrace, please uh, come down if you can. Um, so, saving the best for last. It's like the dessert course here. Economics is, is, uh, is the, the thing that I'm sure everybody's been waiting for. Um, seriously, I'm Matt Goodman. I run the um, economics program here at CSAS. Delighted to join my colleagues in welcoming you here to CSAS for our annual Asia Palooza, as we call it. Um, and uh, we're going to cover um, a range of economic and business issues with a terrific panel here. Um, 2019 was a pretty 
action-packed year, as you know, not only uh, the China phase one trade deal, which uh, absorbed a lot of attention, also had a trade deal with Japan. There was a regional agreement, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership. Uh, the, the new TPP was implemented, first full year of that. Um, you have a bunch of finance and currency issues happening. Uh, you have um, signs of uh, climate change across the region, Australian fires, uh, Indonesian uh, floods. Uh, Ray Vickery mentioned you can't breathe in Delhi. Um, so that's another economic related topic here. And, um, and then we had other things going on, you know, uh, disputes between uh, Korea and Japan that had an economic dimension. So there's a lot going on. Uh, some of that stuff, well, all of that stuff is going to, in one way or another, carry on into 2020, and we're going to try to give some context. I didn't mention Belt and Road, sorry, and the U.S. response to that. Uh, that's going to carry on, so we'll talk about all that. Um, we have a terrific group up here, sort of from my immediate right, your left, uh, down the, the line. Uh, to my immediate right is uh, my colleague Sarah, Sarah Ladislaw, who is Senior Vice President, Director, and Senior Fellow in our Energy and National Security Program. Uh, she's been here a long time, but she was at the Department of Energy once upon a time, um, a real expert in the um, world and has real Asia credibility because she did her, I'd forgotten that, that she did an undergrad degree in, among other things, Asian studies and Japan, Japanese. Um, so, uh, however, Sarah is the outlier uh, on this panel for two reasons. One, she's the only person up here who did not go to SAIS, um, as uh, she went to another prominent institution uh, in town, but, um, but, uh, but the rest of us went size. The other thing is she's the only right-hander on this panel. So um, the rest of us uh, uh, will tolerate having one right-hander. We usually try to have diversity on these panels, but we, uh, we've um, uh, skewed things a little bit. So delighted to have Sarah with us. Next to Sarah is Bill Reinch. I think most people know, senior advisor and Scholl chair in international business, a SICE grad, a left-hander, um, and well-known as a trade uh, walla uh, in Washington for a long time, including on Capitol Hill and uh, in business and working in the Clinton administration on export controls at the Commerce Department. Uh, next to him is Scott Kennedy, another SICE grad and left-hander um, who is senior advisor and trustee chair in Chinese business and economics. Uh, the only real scholar up here in that he has a PhD and taught at Indiana University for a long time. Uh, delighted to have Scott with us as well. And at the end of the line is Stephanie Siegel, my colleague in the Simon Chair, senior fellow, uh, has a, a long career from the U.S. Treasury and IMF, again, uh, SICE and Southpaw. So uh, that is the um, lineup. And we're going to start as the want of a, a Treasury uh, alum with uh, growth. So we're going to look at uh, the, the basic question that we asked. If you can remember, again, if you, especially if you're new here to this panel, turn on your clicker with the orange button. And then you can choose, you can press as many times as you want, but you're only going to get one uh, choice. Which uh, Asian country is most likely to surprise on the upside uh, in 2020 for growth? Oh, I guess we can look over there, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, keep voting, because we have a close tie between India and Indonesia here. Oh, it's a horse race. Who's going to win? Anybody not voted? Go ahead. You could tip the balance here. 
Okay. <laughs> no, once, once is all we can do. Okay. Um, close enough. So, Stephanie, um, uh, the audience is wrong any way you look at this, right? Because, <laughs> not because they chose India and Indonesia, but because none of these countries is going to surprise on the upside, right? So that means the question is wrong, <laughs> not the audience. Um, yeah, well, I think just by way of, of background and kind of to, to Matt's point, when we think about where we are right now, so Davos is taking place, World Economic Forum is taking place right now. We had the IMF update its estimates for global growth on Monday. Um, and it was interesting, the headline that came out of that was that growth would be picking up in 2020 versus 2019. What wasn't emphasized so much is that the forecast was actually a downward revision from where things were in October. So they're actually less optimistic than they were in October. And also the fact that 2019 was the lowest rate of growth since the global financial crisis. So we're talking about a very low bar and we're talking about a downward revision from where things were in the fall, which is even more surprising when you think about the fact that we have solved the trade uncertainty uh, between US and China and signed USMCA. So the things that were weighing on growth, the uncertainty in 2018 and 2019, were supposedly resolved, and yet we're not really seeing a, a bump in the outlook. So. That's kind of the background. Um, one of the other things that the managing director of the IMF said on Monday at the press conference was, we are expecting slightly higher growth in 2020 than 2019, but the risks are to the downside. And then she listed off a litany of risks, including trade tensions. We still have existing US-China trade tensions, but I would add US-Europe trade tensions, probably in a higher order than US-China. Um, we have risks that are coming now from the Wuhan virus and what that might mean for Chinese growth, which Scott will probably say a few words about the outlook for China. Um, and we have just heightened geopolitical tensions. So the situation between the US and Iran is certainly far from resolved. There was plenty in the last panel to scare us. So, um, so I think overall, it's the question that's, that's incorrect here, if anything, I think the risks are to the downside. Um, but to answer a little bit of the, the responses here, I, you know, the question is always relative to what? So if we're saying relative to the baseline forecast for the economy, I think there's been a really substantial downward um, revision to India's growth in 2019. So I think that's a, a good guess there that maybe India is actually ready to turn the corner. Um, the financial issues that led to the downward revision for India are now going on 15 months, so they could be turning the corner now. And I'm surprised South Korea actually isn't higher in that list, simply because there, too, the downward revision was pretty significant, and they're quite below trend. So I could see maybe an upside surprise for South Korea. Okay. Uh, would anyone else like to chime in, Sarah? Not to put you on the spot, but to what? Because you probably haven't fully done this analysis yet. But, um, but you know, climate change uh, and whatever's or whatever is causing you know fires and and all these other problems around the region does have economic um, implications, both drivers of that that cause this, and also implications for growth. You know, do you have any sense of how this is going to affect maybe? In a, in a big structural sense, it's not going to affect the 2020 outlook, but 
this does have an implication for um, economic issues and management in this this year ahead. Yeah, it's really, I mean, it is hard to sort of disaggregate climate impacts and the cost of them on an annualized basis and the potential knock-on effects to broader economic growth trends. It, it is fair to say, though, that over time, the cost of incidents uh, like, you know, the wildfires we're seeing in Australia or the flooding in Indonesia is not only, you know, costing billions of dollars uh, to, uh, to, to companies and to uh, uh, and to governments who have got to try and figure out a way to sort of remedy those situations. There, there's lost expenditure and economic activity during the time that they're going on. I mean, I don't know how many of you have talked to somebody who had a planned trip to go to Australia or sort of a neighboring region, and they're not doing it, right? Or they're going to Indonesia, and they're not doing it for those those reasons. So they're, the on an, any annual basis, you know, it can have a short-term economic effect, particularly localized for particular areas. Um, but the real costs obviously are over time if these are unmitigated situations. Listen, in Indonesia, they want to move the capital for a variety of different reasons. A lot of this has to do with like long-term threats to climate change. But I think what's happening more importantly on the economic environment, which we can talk a little bit about later, in Asia is people who are assessing risk to assets throughout the region are doing that in a much different, much more consequential way now. Uh, not just as a result of these impacts, but also analysis in the way that the investment and reinsurance industries are thinking about them. Great. Well, we will come back to that. But did you want to add something? I was going to ask Scott about China, but go ahead. Go ahead. No. Go ahead, Bill, if you have a sort of two-finger on it. I just to say, if, you, if anybody thinks that uncertainty has gone away because of the China agreement, uh, you're wrong. Uh, this is going to be a year of uh, more uncertainty. We're going to be engaged in trade negotiations with at least three of them, A, B, and C, either phase two or in, uh, or in the case of India, uh, phase one, I guess. Uh, this is a president who thinks uncertainty is a good thing. He thinks it works to his advantage. It's an election year. He wants more victories. Uh, he may or may not get them. But I think uh, you can expect a year of drama uh, continuing on the trade front, as we had last year, and a year of continuing uncertainty. Um, Scott, just to frame the question for you. So 2019 was the slowest year for Chinese growth in 30 years or something, but still 6 point something percent, plus or minus. Um, so, you know, that's pretty good, especially on a big base. Um, that number may be a bit lower, but is there a significant risk to that number based on um, anything, financial strains, um, trade wars, uh, uh, the fact that a nine million person city has just, as we've been sitting here, been shut down, uh, the city of Wuhan, you can't go in or out of right now. Um, is that going to have an impact on, on China's growth outlook? Um, very well could. Um, and I'll, I'll end up on, on Wuhan. So last year, uh, China recorded uh, officially 6.1%. Uh, slowest in a super long time this year, uh, according to the, the, the stats that Stephanie originally cited, should be 6%. Uh, China's got to hit its 100-year centennial goal in 2021 to double per capita income in 10 years. So we know darn sure that this year, next year, the numbers, what they report, will come in around 6% or so, just so that they get those targets. I think this year, what we're going to see is somewhat lower growth but higher quality growth in China. I think that's the headline. And I think that's because last year you had a real drop in private investment in China. And you had growth pick up only because the, the government uh, forced the state-owned enterprises to spend uh, willy-nilly. And I think 
uh, the trade war and lots of things, the uncertainty that, that Bill talked about, uh, depressed private spending. It doesn't, we're not having eliminated uncertainty, but I think we'll see a little bit of an improvement in Chinese private spending. Um, the, the, the drags on growth that could really still slow things down, they're still worried about uh, their financial system. So they've only loosened monetary policy slightly. Um, uh, uh, Bill's fears could come to light and uh, the president could um, uh, renew uh, tariff uh, demographics. The, I think the bigger news than how slow China grow, grew last year was how slow its population grew. The, uh, it, it didn't uh, grow, it's the first time since 1961, the end of the Great Leap, that's the smallest level of population increase that we've had. Um, Wuhan, um, a city of, by my count, 11 million, that's, a com that's New York City and Chicago combined, just shut down. Uh, yesterday it was 100 cases, today they report 544, you always should have I'm not a, a medical expert by any means, but they tell you you need to multiply those by factors of, of 10 or more. Um, this is going to affect other cities. And as you know, Friday is Chinese New Year's Eve, so half a billion people are supposed to be traveling around China. Um, so um, Chinese folks have, have serious concerns about their government and transparency. Um, so we'll have to see what the news is, but uh, I don't know what the macroeconomic effect is. But it, it, it is the big risk. Just to be clear so we don't cause a panic here, I mean, I was just talking to Steve Morrison, the head of our global health uh, um, uh, program, you know, saying we still don't know a lot about this, um, this virus, you know, what is the source cause of it, you know, how it's transmitted, except we do know now it's human to human is definitely happening, but, um, or how it's likely to spread and, and, and so forth. So, you know, there's a lot still to learn about this. And, and noted that the Chinese government is probably better equipped and our government to deal with this than SARS, which sort of hit everybody by surprise. And so there have been some, some improvements in response capabilities, but, um, but still. Yeah, I'll just say, work. just because I'm a rumor monger, I was reading the news that said, you know, this started in a, in a food, mar in, a, in a market with animals, uh, and, and snakes may have played a big role. So uh, that makes me super nervous since I don't like snakes. Maybe you guys love you and Indiana Jones, right? Okay. Um, all right. Um, let us, uh, we're going to do a couple questions. Actually, I think very quickly, let's show what the results were last year just to, uh, this was last year's, or in the year before. I don't know, was it just last year? No, last year and the year before, right? And uh, in India was, uh, was the big winner. Well, Indonesia, we also had um, upside. I guess we didn't ask about it in 2018. Um, so just by reference, similar kind of results. Uh, okay, let's move on to the qu second question. Uh, what will happen in the U.S.-China trade relationship this year? Phase one breaks down. Phase one's implemented. No phase two. Phase two or a comprehensive phase two. And again, turn on your thing. It sometimes goes to sleep if you don't uh, uh, use it often enough. Um, again, vote early, vote often here. Okay, I'm gonna um, I'm gonna start with um, with Scott. I think. Um, do you think the audience has it right? You all are right on the money. Indeed, uh, I think it's all it's gonna be B. Um, we are gonna see uh, uh, all the effort put into implementing Phase One. Uh, both sides don't want 
uh, recriminations and to go back to uh, tariffs. So they don't want the phase one deal to break down. And they're going to be too busy uh, and too disinterested in phase two uh, for, for there to be much work on, on that. Um, there's a lot of effort. This is a long deal uh, with, with lots of components, even though it's the smaller deal relative to the big deal we were uh, looking at originally last April. Uh, lots of legal changes on IP, uh, financial opening. We've got uh, purchase commitments. If the Chinese are going to fulfill their purchase commitments, they are going to increase their imports from the United States this year by 91 percent. It's a lot of work to do. Um, the evaluation office, uh, the institution set up to deal with complaints and appeals, um, that will be busy. Uh, they will get some complaints. Uh, these could take up to 160 days to go from your first complaint to resolution, which could be a remedy or could be one side if you don't like the remedy withdrawing from the agreement. So I think it's going to take a while before we get to anywhere where someone would say they're, they're going to back out. So um, if we're just talking about negotiations with China, uh, it's all about phase one this year, uh, almost nothing about phase two. Of course, there's lots of other stuff that there will come up in the relationship. We'll come to that in further questions. Okay, Bill, you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I don't agree. Um, I voted for C because I think the president uh, is going to want one more victory, and he's going to want it right before the election so he can brag about it. Uh, he'll say it's a great agreement. Whether it is or not, we'll find out at the time, but that's what he'll say. Uh, I think if, the, in, in part, this my answer might have depended on what the question said. If the question said, what will happen uh, by the time of the election, then I would be a little bit more uh, in doubt ab about it. But a full year, uh, I think, gives time to reach an agreement. I think his, his you know, plan A is to do that, brag about it, uh, hope that helps him uh, in the election, uh, and then move on from there. Failing that, uh, I think what will happen is, uh, uh, and, and not so much because they're busy, but because uh, uh, the president doesn't want to be in a position where he's perceived by anybody to have failed, if he doesn't think there's going to be a deal before the election, uh, then he'll do what he's been suggesting all along that he'll do, which is preemptively pull the plug and say, in effect, you know, the Chinese are stalling because uh, they think they'll get a better deal from, if I lose, uh, from the next person. Uh, and I'm going to uh, fool them. I'm going to win. And then I'm, once they realize I'm going to be around for four more years, they'll fold and give me a better deal. So I'm going to postpone the talks until after the election. That way, uh, it's harder to criticize him for failure. Uh, and it allows the political consequences of what does or does not happen to occur after the election. I think that's his fail-safe. I think his uh, preferred route is to uh, make a deal in advance. Uh, it can't possibly be more than narrow. And uh, if, if it, uh, I, that's why I think the people that voted for D, uh, which there weren't very many, uh, are, have missed the point. I think the Chinese are never going to agree to a comprehensive uh, phase, do, phase two. Uh, I think they'll make a judgment about what they're willing to do um, much later in the year. Uh, because you can't make a judgment about anything I just said from the Chinese perspective unless you know or until you know who the president's opponent is going to be. Uh, there are some opponents that I think from the Chinese perspective would be better for them than the president. Uh, I think there's some other opponents that they would probably judge would be worse for them than the president. 
Um, and if they judge that, uh, depending on who that is, that they might win, that may alter their strategy. They may decide it's in their interest to make sure nothing happens before the election, in which case they'll stall you know, right into the end of the year. They may decide that it's to their advantage to make a deal with this president uh, and to do him a favor, basically, which would be kind of uncharacteristic. But it would be, uh, I think it would depend on their assessment of, of the alternatives at the time. That's all unknowable. And it won't be knowable until sometime after the two candidates and the slates are, are set and people can begin to look at post-Labor Day polls and make some judgments about what's likely to happen. But I would still argue that I think the president's preference will be uh, for a, uh, a phase two deal that he can say is great. And I think he'll do a significant, uh, may put a significant amount of effort between now and then in trying to make that happen. Whether it happens or not, we'll see. Okay, let's, let's show the last year's results again, last two years, I guess, 2018, we asked the question on the left, um, similar questions, um, and uh, we saw 2018, greater friction, we were right about that, uh, or you were right about that, um, and, uh, and again, will they resolve things? Uh, no, yes, interesting, that, you know, there was kind of close result there and people well, were... Yeah, but the, the yes and the no, I think, weren't entirely that different because the, the yes is yes except for everything that's important. <laughs> so, I mean, that's kind okay. of a no in disguise, it seems to me. Okay. All right, let's move on to the next, which is another trade question, a more regional uh, trade question, I think. Yes. Uh, so, again, make sure your things are on, your clickers are on. Uh, which of the following agreements, biggest impact on regional trade investment, defined however you want? Um, in the year ahead. Uh, interesting. I'm not sure what the right answer is. You must have a view. <laughs> I have a view. <laughs> okay, Bill, you want to take a first crack at that one as well? <laughs> keep keep voting. Keep voting. He'll keep talking. I think the. Um, I mean, this kind of goes out on a limb because there's not really any evidence for it. Uh, I think the sleeper here is RCEP. Uh, the fact that they were able to complete it, albeit without India, but uh, complete it, uh, was significant. Um, I think it's one of these agreements that's going, to, uh, that's going to grow on people. Like a lot of what happens sort of within the ASEP structure, and that's not exactly within the ASEP structure, but it's, it's following uh, similar paths. You know, it's starting out to be relatively modest, but it's incremental, and I think pieces will be added to it over time. Um, maybe a better way to, uh, it might be, be more honest to say it's going to have the biggest impact over the next several years and not over the next single year. But I think we need to pay serious attention to it. It's more inclusive, <clears throat> much more modest in scope, but it's more inclusive in membership than the others. And I think that the parties that are into it are committed both to making it work and also to, uh, uh, to, to make, it, uh, make it both broader and deeper. Uh, and I think it's got a future. And uh, frankly, the United States has opened the door to that by pulling out of TPP. Uh, and I think that's uh, another reason why it's going to grow. Um, I, I endorse that. And I think we have to all um, acknowledge that in past uh, events, and we don't have the earlier questions, but in, we've generally been pretty disdainful about 
the prospects of an RCEP agreement because it's sort of got India in it and they'll never agree to anything. Uh, and, you know, it's been delayed. And they didn't, so we were right about that, but I think wrong about the fact that it could get done at all. And to credit of Amy Seawright, um, she'd been saying for a year or more that this was uh, going to happen, and it has. And I think, you know, as Bill said, some of the things that are in there, like the single rule of origin across the region, very wonky trade thing, but, you know, could actually affect trade flows in a meaningful way. And, and I think it is definitely something that, you know, we should all pay a little more attention to. Um, CPTPP is still out there. It was, yes, 2019 was the first full year of implementation. Um, and I think, you know, watching how that develops affects trade and also draws in other people, whether Korea or Thailand or maybe the United States, though probably not in 2020, is interesting. I also would flag USMCA because it does have an impact. Um, it's going to have an impact because Canada and Mexico are are big players in the broader, you know, Indo-Pacific region, and some of the rules and um, elements of that agreement, which looks like it's going to be signed next week, I mean, sorry, yeah, uh, signed by the president next week, um, is, uh, you know, is going to potentially affect some of these questions of maybe, again, not so much in immediate flows of trade investment, but it's going to have an impact on the rulemaking process. For example, the digital a chapter is pretty significant and I think one that could shape uh, a trade policy developments in the region. Anybody you want to add something, Scott? Go ahead. Yeah. Um, I, would have, I would have voted for B given the choices that we have and I think the implementation of TPP will matter uh, because it touches on so many new areas that weren't covered by other agreements. Um, but I would have really wanted F. I would have wanted other uh, because I, I, wanna, I want us to pay attention to the five days in June, uh, between June 8th and June 12th, that I think are really going to matter. It's the four days of the WTO ministerial in Kazakhstan, and then the G7 meeting here on June 12th. Uh, I think that is, the, I, although these are global meetings, uh, the consequences of what does or doesn't happen at the WTO ministerial uh, and at the G7 could have huge impacts on the region. Uh, maybe not this year, but in terms of if the U.S. is thinking, um, what type of world does it want? What does Europe want uh, beyond bashing each other over auto tariffs or other types of things? Um, th these are the two, these are the five days that will matter a lot this year. And, and I think that's a really important point and, and a couple of other data points on that. You know, the, the, um, there's some specific things that have to be resolved, like what happens to the dispute settlement mechanism um, in the WTO that this is, the, the Kazakhstan meeting will be an action forcing event to some extent on that. There's, there's subsidy questions that the, the other trilateral, US, um, EU, and Japan just agreed on some uh, new approach to subsidies issues in the WTO. And by the way, minutes ago, uh, we just put out a, a critical questions, uh, uh, questions and answers about that trilateral uh, 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 conclusion. Um, and then, um, and then the other thing is e-commerce is also, uh, 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 there's an e-commerce negotiation that this could be an action forcing event for. And then the bigger thing above that is that uh, Director General Azevedo of the WTO just said, again, minutes or hours ago, that, um, you know, that, there's, that he's open to, in fact, wants sort of really radical reform of the WTO, and he's, he's certainly willing to have that conversation. So I think that is a broader global uh, story that will affect what's happening in Asia as well, so watch that space. Uh, anybody want to add anything else to this question or should we move on to technology? Okay, we'll move on to a couple of questions. Technology, please. Okay, which emerging technology will garner the most headlines in 2020? 
settling on 5G. Definitely of, of those, I think probably that was the right answer for 2019. Again, we don't have this, we didn't have this exact question last year. But, you know, Sarah, let me start with you because electric vehicles is on there. Uh, you've got a few people uh, responding to that, but not many. Why, why not? I mean, that seems like this is a, an important technology that China is trying to get ahead on. So are our automakers, and how does that affect the overall story for the energy sort of story in, in the region? Yeah, I think, I mean, uh, to be kind of trite about it, it'll take a lot more than Elon Musk, you know, dancing in China to get people talking about electric vehicles uh, over 5G, just because I think electric vehicles are really important. There's a lot more... Uh, there's a lot more uh, models that will be coming onto the market. I expect to see a lot more talk about there uh, there being you know more penetration, more option to the consumers. But it's a story we've kind of been over. I don't know that there's going to be a huge breakthrough in terms of what we see in electric vehicle penetration in this year specifically. It'll be a continuation of what we saw before. I think some of the big questions are you know with regard to China, what does it decide to do vis-a-vis -vis its subsidization of the electric vehicle sector? You know, will it go its route that it has with many other technologies where let's you know thousands of flowers bloom and then kills a bunch of them and, you know, decides which ones will succeed. <laughs> How much is that going to be in in China sales effort, how much of that is going to be externally. I think there'll be a lot of market changes in the electric vehicle segment uh, this year. I just don't know how headline-grabbing they'll be. Any other um, energy-related technologies to watch that aren't on that list um, in, in the year ahead or, you know, yeah, a couple I years Yeah, you know, the same, the same level of fascination that people have had for the last several years on electric vehicles are really sort of in the storage space now, right? I mean, the idea of battery electric storage moving from what is primarily been an electric vehicle transportation game so far into something like the power generation space? Will it be able to sort of transform uh, it, the power generation space both in places like China but in places like India as well? These are big questions that people have about technological evolution of battery storage uh, that, I, that I think will be a big deal. But again, those are more in, uh, you know, I'm, I, I do energy all the time, so it's always a big deal in my world. Whether it sort of, you know, breaks out into what other people are thinking a lot about, I think is another big question. I mean, I, I will say there's been a lot of focus in the region, which we can talk about later, about supply chains as it relates to these new energy technologies, right? The strategic positioning of different countries in the region wanting to be manufacturers of these new types of technologies is a very important and impactful game because a huge amount of investment is going into these new technologies in this part of the world. And so to the extent that countries want to subsidize their own manufacturing of particular kinds of technologies, or they see an opportunity with the U.S.-China trade uh, and tariff disputes to sort of get into a supply chain in a new and different way. Those are some of the big shifts we've seen this year that will likely sort of continue into, into uh, 2020. Great. Thanks. Stephanie, do, and I know, Scott, you're going to have something to add on EV, but just, um, uh, Stephanie, kind of that 5G answer right, and what else up there is interesting to you? So I, I said for the first question, I thought the question wasn't quite right. I think with this list, um, it's not quite complete, the answers that we have to choose from. Um, I would add biotechnology to this list. Um, if you think of one of the themes that has really been animating the discussion around technology, it's U.S.-China competition, and there's competition in all of these, but I think in biotech, it's one where there's been a tremendous amount of cooperation between the U.S. and China. It's an area where China is quite competitive, and there are a lot of questions around how that relationship evolves, given continued concerns about the U.S.-China relationship. 
Um, the other thing that is kind of a, a backdrop to a lot of these technologies is um, treatment of data and kind of ethical standards behind them. So, you know, treatment of data impacts digital currencies, um, impacts not just electric vehicles, but um, automated vehicles, and certainly with facial recognition. So I think just the theme of data and digital governance um, and what the approach is there, how much the U.S. leads, um, and can we find some consensus with partners in Asia, I think is going to be a, an important theme in the year ahead. Um, uh, Scott, um, on any of those, but and, and actually, since the audience picked 5G, can you say a word about 5G and why, that's, <laughs> why that is significant? Sure, sure. Um, I wouldn't pick 5G, but I'm glad you did, because it gives us something to chat about. Um, the reason why a technology garners headlines in the news isn't because of long-term trends in the sustainability, dependability, genuine novelness of something. There's some in individual piece of news around which that tech is tied to, which then feeds into a larger narrative. So last year, 5G was important uh, because we whacked Huawei and everyone started talking about the importance of 5G. And, um, and so we'll continue that tussle with Huawei, um, but um, the U.S. isn't really getting much headway in persuading others to give up Huawei as a supplier. There's no big U.S. firm, even though Marco Rubio has a bill that's going to try and build an American national champion. Um, and 5G just isn't ready for prime time. It ain't going to make your TikTok run better or your AV or your games or your movies. There's no business model yet for 5G. So I don't see any big news coming along this year on 5G. Where I do What's the first Super Bowl that's going to have 5G capability for most of us? <laughs> yeah. Not, not this one. I mean, not this one. Not this one. Uh, go Redskins. Yeah. So... I, but, so a long time. Okay. Yeah, yeah, a long, long time. So the, uh, the, um, the but I think the one that's going to generate news, whether it's deserved or not, is digital currencies. Because um, uh, the Chinese this year are going to roll out a virtual yuan uh, in pilots. And that is going to create a Sputnik-like moment in finance. Now, we, we went through that a few years ago when the Remnant-B was added to the IMF's SDR basket and people were worried that it was a global currency. Uh, people don't really understand Bitcoin and digital currencies and all that stuff. And when the Chinese roll this out, there are going to be tons of news and stories and worries. And then folks are going to go back and talk about Libra and everything else. So I expect that to garner all the attention, even though it's also still not ready for prime time. I, I agree. I agree person. with Scott that it's absolutely going to be in the headlines, and there's a lot happening on the one hand, and on the other hand, it's a digital currency in exchange for a paper currency. So, what's different there? If we talk about kind of in the China context, what would be different if there was some change in China's capital account policies that allowed for the yuan to be more widely used? So, if the rollout of digital currency were accompanied by more fundamental changes in capital account policies, then I think we would see a Sputnik moment. I don't think that's where China's headed. So I think there's going to be a tremendous amount of news. I think there are probably a lot of efficiencies to be gained from a digital platform. But is it fundamentally going to change finance, the role of the dollar? I'm not so sure. 
I, I also think quantum is one that's surprised that there's not more answers there, maybe because like me, you don't understand what quantum <laughs> actually means, but it means, you know, we're going to be calculating things faster, and that seems like a pretty central, important part of the overall story and, you know, artificial intelligence and other areas. So I think that that's another space to watch. And there's stuff that's happening in the U.S. trying to invest in this capability. Um, uh, I think we're doing, an, I think Jim Lewis is doing an event on quantum uh, in, in a week or two uh, from now, so stay tuned for that. Okay, uh, next question I think is decoupling. Yeah, 2020, U.S.-China decoupling will. Continue, spread, reverse, and be revealed to be a myth. Remember, turn on. Stephanie, Scott, you want to take a crack at this? The audience is pretty, pretty divided there evenly between whether it's going to just continue in the technology realm or spread to other, other areas. Those are fairly different answers. Yeah, that's kind of, kind of where I am too, and I'm interested to hear what Scott has to say on this one. I, um, when this terminology was introduced, um, decoupling terminology introduced. I think it was viewed at least a few years ago as this kind of fringe idea that has now moved very much into the mainstream. Um, and we know that we have a certain degree of decoupling already because we have export controls and we have heightened CFIUS regulations uh, on foreign investment. Uh, so I, I think there's no question that we have some degree of decoupling but I think the Cold War analogy that was first applied to decoupling, so this idea that you could completely separate the two economies, I think that has been pretty much debunked. I think there's a recognition that we're talking about the world's two largest economies and that all of our trading partners are very much integrated with those two economies, and so it's not a practical solution. I think that's going to prevent decoupling from being uh, you know, uh, applied to much more than just technology. But we also know that it can be a slippery slope. Um, we know that one of the reactions to the signed uh, phase one U.S.-China deal was a letter from a very influential U.S. senator that objected to the fact that one of those chapters would actually integrate the financial sectors of U.S.-China much more closely. Um, so I don't think that we're kind of at the end of U.S. tension. So I, I'm interested, again, in Scott's answer and to see how it evolves, but I, I think A is probably the right one here. Scott. Okay, drum roll. Um, my mission this year, if I have any mission, uh, besides losing a little weight, running a little faster, uh, is to debunk the idea of decoupling. Um, the word of 2018, 2019 was reciprocity. And when we had this event a year ago, we wouldn't have had this question. We couldn't have had this question up on the board. Uh, Hank Paulson in November of 2018 used the idea economic iron curtain. Uh, no one was talking about this really until May or June of this year. And um, it's, it's amazing the level of fatalism uh, that people now have about this, uh, particularly in China, where people are super, super worried about uh, decoupling, and it's where the term uh, originated and then was exported to us uh, without, fee without charge. 
Um, Americans, I also find, are uh, believers in dialectical materialism, right? The thesis, antithesis, th synthesis. We believed in the certainty of ties all the way up until 2017. Then we believed in uncertainty, because uh, Bill was telling us that we have to, because that's Trump. And now we believe in the certainty of decoupling. Uh, and so, and, and yes, the level of interdependence uh, that Stephanie points to has gone down. Trade, bilateral trade's down 10%. Venture capital investment's down 50%. Deemed exports are down 50%. Um, China's efforts to become uh, independent technologically have risen. Uh, a Huawei phone used to take 70 American chips, now takes seven American chips. So they're putting investment in that. But let's not overstate things. We are still highly, highly connected. If we were at 100, I think we're somewhere in the mid-90s now in terms of overall connectivity. But the big thing is, uh, I think if our mindset still is centered around questioning about decoupling, then basically we're, what we're saying is intellectually, our interconnections, our interdependence is just simply a gift to the Chinese. Uh, it is not in our national interest, our strategic interest to do it. And so I think what we need to do is rediscover the value of interdependence. Uh, and if we do that, then we will decide that there has to be some floor someplace or some conditionality which tries to protect the relationship for our strategic benefit, not just because it makes some companies money. So my hope is, is that it ends up being D and that we sort of show that it's a myth, but I, I guess what I'm doing is I'm, I'm mixing prediction and, and hope, which is the worst thing to do. So don't depend it's on okay what I It's okay at a think tank, not at a university, but that's okay. Um, Bill, do you have anything to add to that? We don't have a lot of time, but a quick word on this. That's interesting. Uh, I guess that's, I'm inclined to think that uh, this is driven, I think this administration's policy is, at least in, uh, I shouldn't say the administration, I think there are people in the administration uh, who think decoupling is a good thing uh, for strategic and national security reasons, and they're going to push that, uh, that forward as, as best they can. And I think in, in sectors that where there are national security implications, uh, you're going to see more of it uh, at, at, by government uh, directive, and uh, I think, uh, unfortunately for the economy, the main place that will probably show up is in the information and communications technology sector. At the same time, I, I can't help but think what really is going to drive the train here is not what either government is going to do, but what private parties are going to do uh, in terms of, of how they want to conduct their, their business plans and their business models. Uh, some people will decouple because they've not succeeded in doing business in China or they think the costs are simply too large or the risks uh, are too large, whether they're the ones we enumerated later or earlier or, or other risks. Uh, and some people will persist. Those that, that companies that have a substantial physical investment there already are not going to pack up and leave just because it's inconvenient. Uh, they're going to stay. I think companies that, that have, uh, whose business model is to uh, make a, a market in China or a market in the rest of Asia from Chinese production don't have any particular reason to leave. Uh, and they'll, they'll stay. I, I think the people whose business model is to produce things in China and ship them back here uh, have already run afoul of the tariffs, and uh, which are not going away anytime soon, aside from the ones that went down a little bit. 
uh, and uh, you know they're going to be looking around for a different business model. So I think it's it's very particularized. It'll be driven by the interests of, of uh, more often than not by specific companies and uh, where they see an economic advantage. Okay, we we um, we start a little late, so I'm going to try and buy five minutes. If you have to go, you have to go. But I'd like to be able to just quickly 30 seconds each on the last two questions. Um, first, that one. So Belt and Road, will it continue steadily? Will it uh, improve, accelerate, retreat? Again, turn on your thing. Actually, I think the D is meant to say retreat substantially or something or significantly rather than sustainably, although I do want to get to sustainability. In fact, um, in fact, the audience seems to think that, that it won't improve um, environmentally, socially, from a debt point of view uh, while it continues. Um, I mean, Sarah, do you have any thoughts about the sustainability and the in sort of sense of whether they're building stuff that's going to, you know, cause more harm? Are they going to pull back? Yeah, I mean, in 30 seconds or less, I, I, I do think that China has gotten the message that there's a lot about the way in which they're investing that it, from an, I won't talk about debt sustainability, I'll let uh, Stephanie and others t take that on, that that isn't okay, right? I mean, if the if there's a tri-pronged, you know, reason for the Belt and Road, whatever the heck it actually is, like some of it has something to do with how people regard them. And if you're generally getting negative reviews for a host of reasons, it's not satisfying in that way. I think the problem is, is that when they talk about improving the environmental standards of the projects that they enact, and the environmental community talks about it, particularly the Western environmental community, they're fundamentally different things. Like one is talking about, you know, having a bunch of decarbonized low carbon projects. The other one's about, did you, you know, have higher environmental standards on your coal plants? Or So I, I do think we're still talking apples and oranges, but I do think there's a massive coordinated effort at the international uh, community level to try and get China to understand that unsustainable investing uh, in that way is actually uh, risky for them, and they don't interpret that risk. Okay, there's a lot more to say on this, um, but we do, we are, I do want to get you uh, into this a little bit, but let me just say, John Hillman, who runs our Reconnecting Asia infrastructure project, told me what the right answer is here, and it's basically, essentially, that 2019 was probably peak BRI in the sense that, you know, there may have been a lot of announcements or there may be a lot of announcements of new projects, but in terms of actual spending, it's probably going to be somewhat lower going forward. Um, hopefully more sustainable, we'll see. Uh, but because of China's own financial strains, because of uh, criticism within China of, of wasting money, uh, because of pushback, not just from us, but from the recipient countries, more importantly, that we've probably reached peak BRI. But we can, we can talk about that if somebody wants to challenge me in the Q&A. In the All right, let's get the last uh, question, which is which source of energy, Sarah, you again, but yeah. go ahead and vote quickly. Which of these is uh, the most growth? Um, energy is an important topic here, and I want to make sure we have at least, again, 30 seconds. Looks like gas is the winner here. Sarah? 
Yep. Uh, so uh, if a, a distinction without significance is usually what you mean. Do you mean like on a gross basis or do you mean relative to where the base is? Uh, solar PV is going to grow massively across the world. Uh, and China in particular is going to have just a huge surge in distributed solar PV because of the cost declines and because of the policy incentives. But you're right, gas and a combination of wind and solar have actually been competing with each other for year on year the greatest growth in the Asia Pacific region. The only thing I would say is, like this this question, like many of the other questions, a huge amount of this um, is related to how people feel about the economy, right? So, like a lot of stimulative efforts in the region, you know, beget the kind of investment activity that leads to additional investment in high carbon assets, which lead to a lot of other, you know, sort of knock-on effects for energy demand. So far, what's happened is because people do have uh, incentives and mandates for things like renewables, they're building more of those things. And you do it on a smaller sort of gigawatt basis, right? So you don't have to put the capital outlay for like a very large coal plant or a natural gas plant. Those gas plants tend to be, you know, slightly more expensive. It's a new business in Southeast Asia for many of those countries as well. So there are hindrances to doing things that are much larger in from like a thermal uh, a thermal power sense uh, as well. So, but gas is also the other thing we have to keep in mind is like the largest gas producer, uh, hydrocarbon producer in the world, which is the United States, really wants the region to buy more gas, and so that is also having an effect on. Okay, uh, a lot more to say about that. And Sarah's program is going to be doing a lot of work on all of the above. So um, watch that. Okay, I know the panelists probably have other things to say. So what I'm going to do is collect maybe two or three questions quickly from the audience. Again, if you want to ask a question, raise your hand, and Mike will come to you, and then we'll uh, g gather a couple, and then the panelists can have a last chance in addition to answering those. Anybody want to ask a question about any of the stuff that we've talked about? All right, there's somebody right in the back there, and um, anybody over in this region want to ask a question? You're all stunned by how much great information we gave you. Okay, we'll give it to that gentleman. and. Uh, Stanley Cobra, there seems to me to be three headwinds. Can you decide? Uh, facing the Asian economies. First, demography, population declines. Second, debt, much of which is non-performing. Third problem, the low interest rates, which threatens the solvency of a lot of financial institutions, particularly in Japan. Can this be the Asian century if they do not resolve all these problems, and how can they be resolved? Okay, uh, good question. Stephanie, you want to take a stab at that? Um, demography, debt. Yeah, no, I mean, I, you're right. Um, there are pretty significant headwinds. I think it is different if you're talking about an advanced economy in Asia, Japan, um, or you're talking about emerging Asia. And so I think there is still a lot of potential growth that remains when you're talking about China. Yes, growth is slowing, but GDP per capita there is still a fraction of what it is in the United States. Um, and then India, same story. The ASEAN, largely the same story as well. So certainly there are headwinds to growth. Um, and even the point on kind of the low interest rates, that kind of works both ways. That's a problem for savers, for sure. But for that large debt burden, if you can finance your debt and it's essentially free, then it doesn't necessarily weigh on, on growth. So I think there still is a lot of upside. Um, and so it wouldn't surprise me looking at what is the forecast for emerging Asia that it is an Asian uh, decade ahead. I, I just say it's a point on demography. I, I think it's, for the most part, inherently a long-term problem. 
the labor force of 2035 has already been born. Uh, it is what it is. It's not going to be any bigger. It might be smaller if there's a plague. But uh, the, the only thing you can do about demography and the uh, demographic problems in the short run is immigration, uh, which has a whole raft of issues that we don't have time to discuss. But uh, the larger issue of how do you, how do you produce, produce population growth it's also worth discussing, but even if you succeed, it's uh, only over the long term. It's not anything that's going to have an effect in 2020. Got any final benediction? Um, all, all, big challenges. Um, demography can be destiny, but there's ways to respond. So China still has tons of low-hanging fruit to improve, improve productivity and efficiencies of their economy. There's so many different things that they could do. Um, and and um, there's a few other things one can do, uh, even though the population's already been, you can raise the retirement age. Uh, there are a few other, other ways to, to get more out of your workforce. So um, you can, uh, anyway, so uh, very important, super challenging. Um, manageable because you can see this problem coming a long way over the horizon. Okay, well there's a huge range of issues just there, but there's a lot more to talk about. We know all of our programs are going to be working on all of the above uh, through this year and please uh, keep um, coming to these events and following and asking good questions. Um, I think although I think we had some diversity of views here, even though we all went to SICE and most of us uh, and, and or Southpaws. So I think that was, uh, that was a success, uh, mission, mission accomplished. Okay, uh, please join me in, in thanking the panel for their contribution. <laughs> and ju just uh, two final points. One, thank you to Jeff Bean, Hannah, Ari, the other uh, folks in the Japan chair who helped organize this. Thank you to them. And Jeff is, Jeff will, will come after you if you take one of these clickers with you. These are very expensive. Please leave them in, actually there's a box outside I think. Please leave them either on your chair or in a box out front. If you take them with you, you got to answer to Jeff Bean. So uh, thank you so much for your time and attention today. <laughs>